Low Show, A Good Omens Fic, written by Mia Ugly, and read by B.I.P. Sure, I sink the boat of love, but that comes later. And yes, I swallow glass, but that comes later. And the part where I push you flush against the wall, and every part of your body rubs against the bricks? Shut up, I'm getting to it. Litany in which certain things are crossed out. Richard Sykin. What happened to your coat? Curly hadn't meant to start out like that. Had meant to say something really bloody clever. Cool, even. But those were the first words out of his mouth, dropping like pennies in a well. And fucked if he can take them back now. Avery Fell looks over at him. He's got a darting rabbit sort of gaze, and his blue eyes quickly return to his champagne. Fine, whatever. Most people at the cocktail party have been avoiding Crowley like the Black Death. Certain he's contagious. He's had a couple of drinks. Booze was never his problem. And he's sure not, he's not imagining the disapproving glances that's earning him as well. Oh no, don't let Crowley near the punch bowl. He might trash a set and shag your husband and strangle your kitten and do all the wrong things. That's what he does, right? That's what all these bastards are waiting for, for him to fuck it all up again and prove once and for all that he doesn't belong here. If he's being honest with himself, if he's cutting through the deep, dark, ugly, truthful heart of things, he probably doesn't belong here. It's been ages since he's been invited to one of these fancy premier dues, and he feels overdressed and underdressed, and likely to scratch his suit jacket right off his clammy skin if he doesn't get a cigarette soon. He doesn't belong with the beautiful people anymore, lantern-jawed and surly, and all black elbows and ribs. He probably never did. All right. He came over here with a purpose, making nice with the cringing vanilla so-and-so to his left. That's clearly going down like a lead-bloody balloon. Your coat? Brown leather one? Coat? No, I know... I'm sure you were wearing one. I was eyeing it up on the carpet like anything. That much is true. The coat had a very nice cut to it. And despite a ridiculous bit of tartan peeking out of the sleeves, he kind of wanted to touch it. It looked rather soft. Lost it on your way in, did you? One of the paps rustle it off you to sell online? Fell gives him a tight little smile. A please go bother someone else smile. An expression like someone politely snacking on glass. And this, this man, is going to be Crowley's co-star. Crowley's first real job in nearly 15 years. The second chance he never thought he'd get a long shot at redemption. And this is the man he's going to have to share it with. Jesus Christ on toast. Fel can barely look at him. He's probably just trying to protect his pretty little image. And Crowley gets it. He's the wrong sort of person to be seen with. Avery Fell stays well out of the press, never involved in any sort of scandal, never getting the bad kind of attention. He only pops up now and then when his latest film is winning an award or when he and his partner are donating huge sums to charity. He's clearly too good for this world and all the nasty regular people in it, people like Crowley. Clearly some sort of flawless bloody angel. Look, this will go a lot easier if you pretend you can stand me. Crowley tosses back the rest of his lager, considers another one, considers how it would look, 
whether bees would hear about it tomorrow. He should have dragged them out to spread the misery around. I get it. I do. Can't be seen fraternizing. People might get the wrong idea, right? And I'm sure you're worried about the series, whether I'll light the whole thing on fire and bring you down with me. Fuck it all up. But not at all. Fell's wide blue eyes are suddenly intent on Crowley's face. And I'd rather you didn't put words in my mouth. Crowley is staggered, bowled over, knocked on his arse. Those eyes are really hellishly blue. He'd thought it was something special effects did. Fell's voice sounds different as well. Crowley realizes that he actually hasn't spoken to the man in person before. There was that recent awkward conference call when the two of them were offered their roles in Warlock. They muttered congratulations to each other like aliens learning what words meant. But that was the extent of it. <clears throat> when he's not on screen, Fell's voice is more musical. At least Crowley thinks he can hear music. There's something vibrating around him, some uncanny harmony pressing up against his skin. I have every faith in your talent, Fell continues. The corner of his mouth curls in a shy grin, and that's hellish as well. Was quite the fan of your previous work. You... You were? Christ, Crowley hopes he isn't glowing as brightly as he feels. They'll see him from space. He's such a fucking idiot. Give him a scrap of kindness and he'll follow you home with his tongue hanging out. And these days, no one ever says much about his previous work. Mostly, they ask him if he's okay. How is he doing? Is he doing okay? Has he tried yoga? How's yoga going? Is it going okay? <sighs> oh, absolutely. That Hanukkah film? I must have seen it three times in theaters at least. And the Irish co-production where you played the musician? What was it called? Strings. The ending was simply... There is a sudden flood of delight in Fell's eyes, crinkles forming at the corners. That is a look that Crowley recognizes from the man's films. The happy films, anyway. The nice ones. Turns out Fell can do that look in real life as well. Crowley's glad his drink is empty because fuck... Well, that's really nice. Nice, like this man just brought him a casserole. Bloody hell, Crowley's supposed to be cool. What's wrong with him? It's the truth. Fell is still looking at him with those soft-lit eyes. So Crowley finally looks away, hoping it will help with his sanity. He isn't quite so happy anymore about his empty glass. I saw you on stage once at Stratford as well, ages ago. You were so talented. Crowley doesn't miss the were in that sentence. Of course it's were. It's always were. You were so talented. You were a star once. It was a long time ago. Ages. Lifetimes. Before he fell. You can't talk to me like that on my set. Hey, you fucking prima donna. I don't care who your parents are. I should never have then maybe you should watch your fucking mouth, maybe. You got some problem with the way I talk? I'll say whatever I damn well please. If I want to call someone a fucking queer, then you'd better call me that as well, all right? I'm a fucking queer, Haster, so now what do you have to say? That you're a bloody mess, Crowley. Jesus Christ. Are you high right now? Take your glasses off. Fuck you. Unbelievable. He's fucking high right now. Get him off the fucking set. Security! 
No, you don't. Don't, don't touch me. Get your fucking hands off. <laughs> Good times. Great memories. It isn't every day you get your heart broken, shoot up in your trailer, come out to the world in the stupidest way possible, trash a set, get arrested, lose your job, get blacklisted in the industry you love, all in the space of a few hours. Really, if it wasn't so life-ruining, it might be kind of impressive. Curly bites into the meat of his cheek, bites harder and harder, testing the limits of his skin. Are so talented, fellow men softly, is what I meant. It takes Curly a minute. He slowly unlocks his jaw. What? I just misspoke there. I didn't want you to think. Hi, love. A woman's voice interrupts them, and Crowley realizes that his pulse is beating dangerously fast, the nattering of a snare drum at the start of a march. He's glad for the distraction. Thank heavens you made it just in time. Fell steps forward to give the red-headed newcomer a peck on the cheek. Crowley, I don't believe you've officially met my partner, Tracy. Tracy, of course, this is Anthony Crowley. Tracy shakes his hand enthusiastically. I'm a fan, a massive fan. Almost didn't recognize you without your glasses. Tracy's an overly made-up woman about Fell's age, jingling with bracelets on each of her wrists, a silk dress that looks more like a dressing gown, and an accent that's a bit more common. Crowley's seen her before, but only in the very rare photos of Fell at social events. Tracy's louder in person, shabbier around the edges. Crowley likes her immediately. Such exciting news, the two of you working together. This one won't shut his mouth about it. Tracy gestures toward Fell, who presses his lips together. Goes a bit pink, maybe. Nah, probably just the light. I'm going to pop to the bar, get myself a G&T before the film starts. I'll see you gents in. As I thought you were wearing that leather jacket tonight. The nice one. Did you change your mind? Oh, yes, a bit warm for it. Warm? Give over. Just getting out of the car, I was freezing my... T she stops talking suddenly, purses her pink-smeared lips. You know what? I'll just get that drink. She heads off to the bar, and Crowley stares at Fell, silently. After a moment more of that, he raises an eyebrow. It usually does the trick. I gave it away. It takes Crowley's temporal lobe a few extra seconds to make that into something sensical. You what? My coat. There was the girl outside the theater on the corner with the cardboard sign. Don't look at me like that. It's cold out. It's just going to get colder. You gave your coat away. How would Crowley not notice this? To a tramp. Shh. Fell waves his uncocktailed hand urgently. Please keep it down. I don't want anyone to hear. You don't? This may be the biggest shock of all. Then everyone might talk about it, and I... Let's just leave it. Tracy already thinks I'm too soft, and it, it doesn't matter. Please don't say anything. Curly feels like he can't get enough air, like maybe he tied his scarf too tightly around his throat. He tugs at it, and Fell looks over in concern. My dear, are you all right? My dear. 
When was the last time anyone called him something so gentle? When was the last time he had a pet name? When? No. Anthony Crowley, stop whatever the fuck you're doing this absolute second. Stop what you're thinking as well. Definitely stop looking at him. But Crowley does not stop looking. Not that Fell is an astonishing beauty. Maybe in a cherubic, middle-aged sort of way, all tight blonde curls and flushed cheeks. But he's more like the idea of a person than an actual one. And he's not Crowley's type. Not at all. Fussy as anything. Straight-ish. Let's be honest. It's the arts. Taken. It's ridiculous. There's a five-minute warning announced over the speakers. And Felgus Crowley a smile that's warmer this time. Still weighted down with pockets full of stones. But a bit more real. Crowley wonders, a whiskey-sharp thought that has no place in his brain, what it would take for Avery Fell to let his guard down, even for a moment. How much booze, how much time, how little sleep. What could get him to smile at Crowley in an open-book sort of way, spine cracked, pages ruffled? And that's when Crowley is jostled by the latest BBC ingenue, well on her way to pissed and wobbling in her stilettos. The poor thing whimpers as a subpar red wine spills down the front of Crowley's shirt. Shh, it's okay, I'm so sorry. It's okay, right? She wiggles her fingers, pulls up the tiny straps of her dress, and then promptly pisses off what's left of her Merlot. The fuck? Crowley hisses to himself as Fell takes a step toward him. Oh, what a disaster. Don't worry about it. I'm all in black. Can't see it. But you'll be damp for the entire film. Hardly pleasant. Here, just let me. And suddenly, Golden Globe winner Avery Fell has a handkerchief in his hand and is pressing it to Crowley's chest, soaking up the worst of it. Crowley swallows. He doesn't move. There you go, the goddamn angel says softly. It's no trouble. We'll have you fixed right up. Right. It's a wonder Crowley can speak. What the fuck is happening? His skin is cold from the air and damp from red wine, but every now and then he can feel the heat of Fell's palm through the fabric of his shirt. You poor, pathetic, touch-starved bastard. Pick up someone at a club and quickly, you are clearly losing your mind. Again. Better, Fell says, pulling back. The handkerchief in his hand is now stained purple like a fistful of violets. Fell's hand is as well. Curly wonders, and then immediately wants to lobotomize himself, if the man's thick fingers would taste like subpar Merlot. I suppose you'll want to go into the theater. I'll wait for Tracy, and uh, we'll see each other in three months, won't we? Uh, yep. I expect we'll be seeing a lot of each other. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad we had a chance to chat properly. I was always hoping you'd... Well... Fell stops and looks away, swallows. Curly watches the bob of his throat. I look forward to working with you. Curly manages a weird, unbalanced smirk. He can feel it tilting on his face, knows what he looks like. He mumbles something unintelligible and slinks away. He doesn't know if he quite gets the slink down, but he's feeling a bit off balance, never good for any sort of swagger. He finds his seat for the film and curses himself for getting so caught up in their conversation that he forgot to piss off for a smoke. 
Now he has to sit through the whole film thinking about it. Damn fell for distracting him. The man in question is currently coming down the row a few in front of Crowley's, a bit closer to the screen. His hair catches the light like a halo, making him look more of an angel than ever. Even in the darkness, he seems to notice Crowley staring at him, staring for fuck's sake, and gives him a precious little wave. Crowley grimaces, doesn't wave back, but his hand clenches on the armrest in one desperate spasm, wanting to, wanting to. This could be a problem, Crowley thinks, and then thinks better of it. Absolutely bloody not. He's being an idiot, and if he calls bees later while nursing a tumbler of whiskey and tearing out his hair... Ringlets, bees. Bloody ringlets. You just murder me. I'm not allowed to feel like this about someone with ringlets. Well, he's an actor. He's allowed a bit of drama now and then. It won't be a problem, Crowley thinks to himself as the lights go down and the opening credits start. Three rows ahead of him and seven seats down. Fell laughs. Fuck. It could be. Three years later. Emmy Awards, February 9th, 2020. Red carpet transcript. Hollywood Life. Avery. Avery, do you have a second for Hollywood Life? A fell. Oh, hello. Yes, of course. Hollywood Life. Look at that suit. That bow tie. Very dapper. A fell. Thank you very much. Hollywood Life. Going solo this evening? A fell. Yes, unfortunately, my partner is back in London with a family matter, so it's just myself tonight, I'm afraid. The rest of the cast is extremely disappointed. Tracy's much more fun than I. Hollywood Life. How are you feeling about tonight's ceremony? Nervous? Excited? With Warlock up for Outstanding Drama Series? A fell. Yes, it's truly incredible. I'm so honored. We all are. Hollywood Life. What do you think of your chances? A fell. I don't know. I thought this first season was something truly original, and it's such a pleasure to be part of it. And of course, the award would be nice, but it really doesn't matter. We're just so grateful to be making something that the audience is with connecting with, all of us. Hollywood Life. Now, for anyone who hasn't seen the show, not that I imagine there are many of them left, A fell. Oh, bless. That's extremely kind of you. Hollywood Life. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Warlock? How would you describe it? Because it's kind of between genres. A fell. You know, I've heard that before, and I think it's rather accurate. Um, I'd say that Warlock is a historical sort of fantasy. There's a clear Game of Thrones comparison, but I think we tell the that sort of epic story on a smaller, more personal scale. It's more about the ordinary people living in this chaotic world. And then you have my character, a priest who's lived a very quiet, mm, scholarly life, and finds himself at the center of things, forced to work with this mm, charlatan snake oil salesman type of character, of course, played by the great Anthony Crowley. Hollywood life. What is it like working together? It seems like the two of you... A fell, yes. Hollywood life, have great, you know, that rapport that you bring to the roles. You can't, oh, there he is. 
Anthony. Anthony, can you come talk to us for a minute? Hey, Crowley. Hi, Angel. Nice uh, bow tie. Afel. Hello, dear. Hollywood Life. So clearly the two of you have a good working relationship. A. Crowley. Nah, can't stand each other. Afel. We certainly complement each other, I think. Our characters on the show are extremely different, of course, and our real personalities are rather different as well. A. Crowley. For example, I dress like someone from this century. Afel. And I'm someone with manners and taste, whereas this one, Hollywood life. Anthony, the success of Warlock must be even more exciting for you, as it has kind of symbolizes your comeback to the entertainment industry. What has that been like for you? A. Crowley. That's, uh, that's complicated. Hollywood life. Has it been hard to give up your bad boy lifestyle? A. Crowley. My what? I don't... Hollywood life. You've had some run-ins with the law in the past. Has that been a challenge while filming, in terms of traveling to different countries, different locations? A. Fell. I'm sorry, my dear. We really must be moving along. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. As takes Crowley's arm and pulls him down the red carpet like there are wolves at their heels. If his hands are tight on Crowley's bicep, if they're warm and strong, and Crowley leans into the touch just a bit more than he should, well, he's fucking earned it after that bloody gauntlet. You should have shut that down immediately, as matters under his breath. Tracy's nickname for him has stuck and stuck hard. What sort of soundbite was that woman even expecting? We have two minutes and she wants to get into... You're just intimidated by my bad boy lifestyle, Crowley says, smirking behind his sunglasses. Smirking is easy, much easier than talking about the way his heartbeat is still racing, the black spots flashing in front of his eyes. They know, they know, they fucking know you don't belong here. Yes, you're ever so intimidating. Yes, you're ever so intimidating. As drops his arm at that, but that's all right. It had to happen eventually. They couldn't just go around holding hands all through the Emmys. People would get the wrong idea. Or the right idea, in Crowley's case. But he's learned to second-guess his first impulses. They're never good ones. Best replay them over and over again, and then do nothing. That's the ticket. I quite like that jacket on you. Navy blue instead of black, darling. You've clearly lost control. Call me darling again. Crowley wants to say, even though it's unnecessary, as always does. The pet names have only increased in the years they've been working together, but they f still feel new every time Crowley hears them. He could live off the deers and darlings, wouldn't need food or booze or even cigarettes. All right, he might still need cigarettes. Harder to quit than heroin, as they say. Call me darling again. Crowley holds the thought anyway, sloshes around in it like bath water. That particular word from Avery Fell's mouth feels like slowly having your bones warmed through with blankets out of the dryer. Feels like having the pain rubbed out of your aching shoulders with soft, strong hands. Feels like coming home. Yeah, yeah, Crowley's fucked. But he could have told you that three years ago. And Christ, has it really been three years? Can't believe it. 
feels some days like he's known this man for 6,000. Crowley came from a film family. He's been surrounded by people who loved his parents and loved him through osmosis or some shit all his life. People treated him like he hung the bloody stars, handled him with kid gloves until he drove his life off a cliff. Then they were all too quick to scatter. But even his closest friends back then had nothing on whatever he and Az have. Something stupid and messy and real. Three bloody years, and he and Az spend more time together than he did with his first boyfriend. More time than he ever spent with Luke. Nothing to see here. Move along. Let's avoid those memories right bloody quick. Do you want some champagne? No, I'm all right. Curly doesn't usually like drinking in these sorts of places. He's already anxious, and that makes the champagne disappear a bit too quickly, and then the whole bloody world has to weigh in the next day on social media. Anthony Crowley's wild night out. Instead, Crowley watches Az take a glass from the offered tray, sip delicately at it. His mouth is a perfect pink Cupid's bow, the kind of mouth that a Victorian maiden should have, the kind of mouth that makes Crowley want to. Anyway, moving on. Hmm. As smacks his lips consideringly. Too sweet for my taste. That's the first time those words have ever left your mouth. Oh, stop. I may drop dead from shock. I have a very sophisticated palate, I'll have you know. Crowley is extremely thankful for his dark sunglasses. No doubt. It's hard for him sometimes, most of the time, not to stare like an open flame at this poncy blonde git. The glasses have always been his trademark and never hurt when it came to hiding how dilated his pupils were. But now, several stints in rehab later, he's covering his eyes for completely different reasons. Don't ever, ever, ever let him see the way you look at him. Some nights when Crowley can't sleep and cigarettes and yoga and tension tamer tea won't help, he has conversations with himself. One of those conversations goes like this. Crowley, you miserable bastard. Yeah, I'm talking to you, the only one who can hear this voice in their head. Listen the fuck up. One of these days, you're going to get really drunk. You've been really drunk. You know how it goes. But one day you will be drunker. And you will be laughing and you will be looking at your co-star, possibly in his damnable office with the shelves so crowded it feels like an old bookshop. And you might think to yourself, self... I should just fucking tell him. Are you paying attention? Good. This is the tricky bit. You might think, this love is like a shovel in my throat. It's going to choke me if I don't say something. And if he tells me off, at least I'll be able to breathe for a few blessed minutes. You might think, he's smiling at me and he's sitting close enough on this sofa to touch. I could just lean over and kiss him, lean over and whisper into his hair. I'm a disaster over you. I'll do anything you want if you let me. Use me. Tell me what you like. I don't even fucking care as long as I get to touch you. We can pretend it didn't happen in the morning. Please, Angel, my God, I... Bad idea. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Crowley, when that moment comes, you must shut your mouth and drink a glass of water and get the hell out. Call a cab, book a lift... No, don't interrupt me. Trust me on this. It won't end well. And it can't end well. And you must do everything you can to avoid tanking this friendship like you tanked your career. Repeat after me. 
getting late, really should be heading off. Call you tomorrow, Angel, all right? Repeat after me. Shite, I've had enough. Better leave while I'm still upright. Let's do brunch on Sunday, yeah? And once more with feeling. As I've got to go. Early day tomorrow. Give my love to Trace. Don't look at me like that. Don't smile at me like that. Don't get that hurt crease in your eyebrow as I get my coat on. Don't make me want to open my mouth and stay, stay. Okay, forget that last bit, but keep the rest on the tip of your tongue, ready to spit it out when you need it. Crowley doesn't particularly like these conversations with himself, but in those fraught, silent evening hours, there isn't anyone else around to talk to about this. He gave up talking to bees after that first night of whiskey-soaked panic. If they weren't his manager, he'd probably give up talking to them about most things. He occasionally talks to his therapist about it. Pepper's an all-right sort of girl, even if she looks too young to drink, let alone have a master's in counseling psychology. She mostly just lets him prattle on her about anything, throwing in the odd life-destroying comment that Crowley tries to dodge like a dart. He's pretty good at it by now. It's all in the hips. He and Azra escorted to their seats with the rest of the cast and crew that managed invites. Anathema raises an eyebrow when the two of them come in together, and Crowley bares his teeth at her like some sort of animal. It just makes her laugh, which is unplitty fair. Crowley was an intimidating person once, he's sure of it. Now he just feels like a wobbly snake with hair and an affinity for black leather. The two of you came together? Anathema whispers as Crowley moves down the row past her. Fans will be pleased. Shut it. The woman's a brilliant actor, but she has, as the kids say, no bloody chill at all. Curly knows that there are people watching the show who have some strong, surprisingly erotic opinions about his character in Avery's. Viewers who light up the, what, chat rooms? Is that still a thing? Whenever Az calls him dear in an interview or when the damn word angel slips from his mouth. He's gotten in the habit of using it on set, and he hasn't gotten out of it. The first time it happened was on Graham fucking Norton, but as was a guest too, and just smoothly followed it up with, yes, darling, and it got a good laugh. Ha, very ha. Bloody hilarious that anyone would ever think there was any possibility like Avery would ever. Anyway. The whole fan thing is charming, but it makes Curly panic a bit, sweat through the collars of his shirts. Like, is there something in the way he looks at Az? Is it something he's revealing even when he's trying not to? Some wet, rank secret rising up through his floorboards and growing black mold in his cellar, up his staircase, through his entire fucking house. But no, there can't be. That's the end of it. Cut that ribbon and curl the edges of it. Thank heavens we're sitting together, as darts that rabbity glance at him, the one that stopped being offensive years ago and is now incredibly, revoltingly endearing. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Curly drops into his seat like his strings were cut, crossing his spidery black legs at the knee. He lowers the sunglasses to the bridge of his nose so that he can actually see what's going on around him. The lights are dim and there are limits to his powers. Stop being so twitchy. You'll get me started, as taps him lightly on the arm. Curly contemplates snarking back at him, but doesn't have the energy for it. Sorry, you know how I get. 
I do. As his tap turns into a squeeze, his hands strong and tight on the bones of Curly's shoulder. His eyes are so achingly gentle that it hurts a little. Curly feels the burn in the back of his throat and right below his collarbone, cauterizing a wound. You needn't worry, though. You're doing marvelously. And Curly has no response to that. He chews at the corner of his mouth, tries to remember how the absolute fuck he ended up here. It clearly started the first day they met, that blasted premiere screening and Az's missing leather coat. There wasn't a strike of lightning or anything, more like a crack, slowly spreading through a dam, growing imperceptibly larger until one day, Curly looked across the set at Az, getting mic'd up, chatting and smiling with the sound girl, and thought, holy shit, I'm already underwater. Oh my god, I have been drowning for months and I didn't even know it. And now I'm so far gone that I can't even see the surface. Looked across the set and thought, oh, fuck me, I'm in love with him. No, no, no. Curly stutters over Az's body, pressing his hands to his chest. A blossom of red starts to unfurl like petals against the man's white shirt. Az is lying on the forest floor, face dove gray. His fingers are digging into the pine-needled earth, and his eyes are wide and intent on Crowley's. It's fine, Az says quietly, and Crowley's longing hands swim with blood. I'm all right. Uh, all right, Crowley murmurs back to him, the words rattling like a bullet between his teeth. Am, am I bleeding? Just a bit. It's okay. Hey, keep your eyes open, yeah? Your hand, don't move it. As lifts one of his and lets it drop heavily over Crowley's. Just there. It's warm. You're warm. Hang on, all right? Don't... Az's eyes flicker closed, but he is smiling. Just there. Don't. I can't. Tears are making it difficult to see. Crowley lets one spill down his cheek bites at the corner of his mouth. His hands, his hands are wine dark and he can't breathe, can't move, can't possibly stop trying to hold Avery's ruined chest together. Cut! Michael shouts from behind the camera. Oh my God, the two of you. As lets out a shallow breath beneath Crowley's shaking palms. I'm tearing up over here, Michael continues. Hold for stills, okay? Just a sec. Crowley does not lift his hands from Az's chest, feels the soft thumping of his heartbeat beneath the damp shirt. Az opens his eyes. At last, at last, let me look at you. And Crowley grins down at him as the photographer and makeup and wardrobe people circle like sharks, cameras clicking. You're meant to be dying, Crowley says through tight lips. Bit difficult with you dripping all over my face. It's called acting. These are real tears, Angel. This is my Oscar real moment right here. My apologies. I clearly meant to say how impressive you are. Eh, I cry easy these days. Ducks, babies. That terrible sweater you had on last week. Yes, I seem to remember wailing and gnashing of teeth and rending of clothing. That's your weekend you're remembering. As lets out a startled laugh, the tips of his ears going pink. Crowley's smile spreads slow as a fire through wet leaves. Foul fiend. You love it. Stop 
flirting anathema mutters as she walks past to her mark. I'm telling Tracy. Can't two hot-blooded heterosexual men lie on the forest floor together, covered in each other's blood and tears, without getting accused of flirting these days? Curly calls back to her, which makes the first AD choke on her laughter. As does not laugh, however. He's closed his eyes again, mouth going flat and still. Getting back into character, probably. Consummate professional that he is. <sighs> Good for him. Crowley is not so professional. Crowley is a hungry, bone-starved thing. He takes the two seconds he thinks he can get away with it to study Az's eyelids. The skin would be so soft there, lined gently with veins the colors of lilacs. Given the chance, Crowley would press his lips to them. Maybe, if it was something Az liked. He'd kiss one first, then the other. Slow, grasping kisses that would wake Az from even the loveliest of dreams, having him opening his eyes and his mouth, smiling. Okay, we're good. Thank you. Michael interrupts that completely appropriate and platonic moment. We're going to block the next scene now, then, Avery, you can get changed. Help up, Crowley offers, pulling his wet hands back from his co-star's soft chest. There's a hint of trouble in Avery's eyes as he opens them again, a crumpled paper sort of look. Thank you, dear. When their hands touch, they're both wet with fake blood, food coloring and syrup, profanely sweet. Curly has the sudden stupid wish that the red of it would never wash off, that he'll carry Avery fell around in his palms forever. So Curly's in love. Doesn't matter. It's fine. He hasn't been in love all that much before, to be honest. Had been going through a bit of a dry spell, a 40 years in the desert stretch, before he met Az. Curly had given up on feeling anything like that again, though his heart had grown a shell around it like a beetle's. Thought he'd gotten older, gotten better, maybe possibly learned from his mistakes. That'd be a fine thing, learning something. What a thought. Turns out his heart had been storing it up, all that ragged-edged, burnt-fingered longing, just to bring it back full force, like pulling on an elastic. You keep pulling and pulling, and the longer it goes without snapping, you think, ah, maybe it'll never snap. But no, you idiot. The longer it takes, the sharper the eventual sting is going to be. Curly wasn't ready for it. He's old and tired, can't manage the weight of this longing. Leave it to the young. He isn't a bloody teenager, though some days he still feels like one. Feels like those pinpricks of electricity under his skin, like his blood is trying to boil out of his pores. He remembers that sensation from his early days of acting, a feeling that drove him out late, 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 scratching at his arms, tongue down the throat of anyone that would have him, tattoos from strangers in dodgy back rooms, booze at first, and then things a bit harder, sharper, anything to make him feel still for a bloody second. Anything to make his skin stop singing, to feed that licorice and shark toothed mouth that lived below his breastbone and was always, always starving. Pepper says it's called anxiety and depression, possibly undiagnosed ADHD. She wants to talk about his parents and his self-esteem and how yoga is going. Yeah, hard pass on all of that. Warlock does not win best series. Well, just an honor to be nominated, isn't that what you're supposed to say? There's an after-party that HBO puts on at the plaza, and Az gives Crowley a lift there, and when they get to the valet parking, they just look at each other, don't move. 
There's a stream of people milling about at the entrance. Curly can see lights and flashes going off, and all the beautiful people waiting to cast their clear glass judgments on him. And a chorus of no's rise up in his bloodstream, and... Would you rather, I don't know, come back to mine? Az asks. Curly can feel the other man's breath against his jawline. Thank God, yes, yes. So that's what they do. Az owns a place in town for when he's filming. A two-bedroom mid-century out on Silver Lake. Curly has been there before, even stayed there once or twice by himself when Az was off doing some other project between seasons. It's nothing like Az's London place, which is cluttered and cozy and smells like him. The scent of old paper and Earl Grey tea and sandalwood, all muddled together and poured over ice. The L.A. place doesn't smell like that. It smells like fucking lemon pledge. It's a damn sight cleaner, as is terrible-managed jerk Gabriel is a bit obsessive about that sort of thing. Has housekeepers in weekly, even when no one is staying there. Gabriel furnished the place as well, picked out all the clean-lined furniture, the Westell metal lamps, the wood-framed sofa. Everything shines with polish, and Crowley absolutely hates it. He also has a key to the front door. There's something a bit unsettling there. As gave it to him the first time Crowley flew out to L.A. by himself, said, No one's there. Plenty of room. May as well you make some use of it. They had just wrapped the first season, still on edge about what the show would look like in the end, whether anyone would give a damn, and Crowley has never been very good with anticipation. Started chain-smoking and biting his nails and fidgeting so much he was getting blurry around the edges. Bees booked him a week-long meditation retreat, more punishment than anything else. And he came back from L.A. at least a little bit less blurry. And Az told him to keep the key. You're welcome any time, dear. What a fucking thing to say. Sometimes Crowley keeps that key in his pocket, rubs it like a worry stone between his thumb and ring finger. He's probably wearing parts of it down smooth, but whatever. He likes the weight of it in his hand. Likes knowing that someone like Avery Fell thinks he's welcome any time. What would you like to drink? As is rummaging behind the fully stocked bar, jacket off and shirt sleeves rolled up to the elbows. Wine? Something stronger? I have that Yeochi single malt you seemed to enjoy before. Whatever you want, Angel. Curly sits on the leather sofa and tries not to get too dry-mouthed over Az's forearms. The slight curvature of the muscle, the dusting of gold hair. Hmm. Malbec? Uh, yeah, sure. Az pours them both a glass of it and hands one to Crowley. I'll just ring up Tracy, see how her mum made out. She'll be up already, I think. Won't be a minute. He touches Crowley's shoulder with one warm hand as he heads off into the bedroom. Tell her hi from me, Crowley calls after him, and when the bedroom door closes, he drinks half his glass of wine without pausing for breath. Tell her hi from me. Tell her all the terrible things I want to do to her husband. Not technically her husband, but close enough. Tell her all the obscenities I want to bite like a plum against your bloody forearms. <sighs> Crowley drums his fingers on his wine glass, can't stay still, thinks about finishing the rest in one swallow, Topping it up before Az gets back. Forces himself to wait on it. In the bedroom, he can hear Az's muffled voice, the sound of laughter stuffed with cotton balls. Christ. In the near dark, the L.A. house gives Crowley the creeps. 
It's cold and impersonal, and he always feels a bit like a stranger here. There's the soft hum of traffic from whatever freeway's nearest, and Curly keeps waiting for Charles Manson to kick down the door and murder him. The only presence of Az in this space at all is the stack of expensive writing paper on the teak coffee table, a couple of blots of ink marking their clean white surfaces. There's a few words written down as well, crossed out dramatically. Curly contemplates getting off the couch, going over there to snoop, but that would be a bad bloody look. Az writes letters surprising no one. It's such a cliché that sometimes Curly thinks he must have made it up in a fever dream, or just assumed it and forgotten it was never confirmed. But no, Az possesses sheaths of thick, clear fontaine writing paper and several custom pilot pens worth more than Crowley's life. After the first season of Warlock wrapped, Crowley arrived back home in London to find a wax-sealed envelope waiting for him. He didn't open it for a good few hours, convinced it would be a threat or something, some blood pact he'd agreed to whilst high out of his tree that was coming to claim his firstborn. But no, it was just a fussy actor with beautiful curly cue handwriting inviting him to dinner. They were already spending most of their evenings together while they were filming. After that letter, they started spending their evenings in London together, too. Sometimes Tracy would be there, but mostly it was just the two of them, drinking their way through both their wine cellars and being absolute idiots together. It didn't make a bit of sense how quickly Az became an indispensable figure in his life. It was something that Crowley couldn't suss out, could barely put into words. It was just ineffable. There, all done. Az comes out of the bedroom, tucking his phone away and sitting in the chair opposite Crowley. How's she doing? Well enough. Her mum's out of surgery, did well. Tracy's mostly upset she wasn't to come out and meet Trevor Noah. You know how she is about him. Curly smirks. He does. She sends her love, of course, as continues, with a fond roll of his eyes. Sure she does. Maybe to Trevor Noah. Well, to him, certainly. You're an afterthought, I'm afraid. But still a thought. How generous of her. How's the Malbec? Avery eyes Crowley's half-empty glass. You clearly detest it. Clearly. You have the worst taste, I swear. They pass a couple of hours this way, as they always do, talking about nothing and finishing a couple of Az's best bottles of red. White always gives Crowley a headache. Always has. There's a strange urgency tonight, though, and Crowley can guess why. He's back to London after this, and Az is staying in the States to do some voiceover work. And then who knows when they'll see each other again. They will, though. They always do. Their paths always seem to twine back around and through and into each other's. Once they accidentally met in St. James's Park while Crowley was jogging. Christ, he hates jogging. And Az was feeding the ducks. Of course he was feeding the ducks. Once they ran into each other in an oyster bar. <clears throat> in Brooklyn. Grand Army. Great cocktails. When neither even knew the other was in the city. Let me tempt you, Az had said. Stopped. Blushed and Crowley hadn't need to be asked twice. Some awful part of Crowley's brain could call this fate if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Like he said, he's not a teenager. Dolphins have the brains the size of, well, 
bloody big brains. And whales? Brain city whales. What in the fuck is Crowley even talking about? God, he's an absolute mess when he's in love and drunk. As is less of a mess. His wine glass is empty, and the smile on his mouth is some sort of deadly geometry, an equation meant to cut Crowley's throat while he's sleeping. And let's not even talk about the crease between his eyebrows. Don't go there. Crowley realizes he's really drunk. He's been really drunk before, but tonight, he's drunker. And with a punch to his chest like a kick drum beat, he thinks, Self, I should just fucking tell him. What could it hurt? As is a great bloke, wonderful friend. He would never be cruel. He would let Crowley down gently. He would wince and stammer and apologize, and it would all be fine. In the end, it would be fine. And Crowley could build a ladder from that kindness and climb the hell out of this hole, this pit. Could start to move on, could recover, could get the fuck over this. Better head out, he says, getting to his feet like a sailor finding his legs. Better. Yeah. It's late. Are you certain? You're staying downtown, aren't you? It's fine. Crowley tells himself it's fine. He fishes his phone out of his maybe a bit too tight trouser pockets, tries to clumsily text for a cab. How did his thumbs get so big? Not a problem. As long as you're sure. There's a guest room in the flat, of course, but Crowley would never take it, and As has never offered it to him. They don't have to speak about it, don't have to sweep the dishes off the table and lay out the wretched cards that illustrate why it would be a terrible idea. They both already know. Anthony Crowley, unrepentant homosexual, seen leaving Avery Fell's L.A. home this morning after a cozy night in. I'll see you tomorrow, though, As asks, getting up from the chair and brushing at the non-existent wrinkles in his trousers. I don't know. I've got a pretty early flight. Too early for the likes of you. I'm a very early riser. Don't even start. It was like pulling teeth in Belfast to get you there for call time. Those were some late nights. I was still recovering. In the uncanny yellow light, Crowley watches him. Avery looks tired, tilted vaguely downwards. Crowley wants to dig his fingers into the meat of his thigh and push his legs apart and kneel there. All right, then. I believe you. It gets easier than not telling, than not speaking of it, than never speaking of it. Ring me when you're back in London, if you like. Curly barely notices the ache of silence anymore. It's like nerve pain. It only flares up now and then, and when it does, it's bloody brutal. But when it's gone, you can kind of put it to the side, bury it in the back garden, let it rot there like a dead bird. All right, As repeats quietly. He sees Crowley to the door like a proper gentleman, As is nothing if not proper, and Crowley is anything but a gentleman. In the back seat of the taxi, Crowley thrums through photos from the awards show, trying not to look too long at any of the ones of him and As, trying not to study the way As smiles at him, that ridiculous Christmas morning look he gets sometimes when the two of them are talking together. It's embarrassing is what it is, and it 
means nothing. Curly scans a couple of the photos Bees has already emailed him and gnashes his teeth together. Tells himself not to read into it. Calls himself all kinds of the worst names. But there. That look right there. Surely that isn't the way a completely straight person would look at his co-star. Fuck right off, he hisses, and then winces when the cabbie turns around. No, not you. Sorry. It's been a long night. The hotel room is another disaster, but one that Crowley is prepared for. He knew what was coming, particularly after the second bottle of wine was opened. He's tried to put some limits around these thoughts in his own private spaces, in his London flat where Az and Tracy have both been, had supper with him, played cards. He can't do this sort of thing there. It's disrespectful or something. But hotels are liminal spaces where nothing really exists, and no one ever has to know or admit to anything. And therefore Crowley is allowed to work some things out, so to speak. You fucking... Yes he says as he fucks his fist and tries to think of anyone other than his straightish co-star. Now, it's a lost cause, just like Crowley, entirely lost. Would you look at me with those patient eyes, patient mouth? Would you touch me with those soft, soft hands all smoothed with cocoa butter because you're such a fussy bastard? Nope, forget that last part. I don't mind. I want you fussy and smoothed-fingered with expensive lotions. I want you pretentious and telling me about your vintage French poetry books. I want you anxious and rattling around a cup of Earl Grey tea. I want you in every way it is possible to want someone who doesn't want you back. Fucking, please, you gorgeous, please let me. He imagines getting on his knees for Avery, sucking him off so sweetly that he'd never be satisfied with any other person's red wet mouth. Never again. He imagines Avery compliant and wanting beneath him, undoing buttons, spreading his legs. Please fuck me, please, as soon as you can. Or maybe it wouldn't be like that at all. That's fine. He'd take Avery snappish and unsure, even a bit bitchy, telling Crowley what to do. Fuck. Forcing his face down, bending him over, hissing against the back of his neck. You're mine, aren't you? And I'll do what I like with you. Shit. Fuck, he's going to come. Angel, Crowley gasps as he spurts over his knuckles, mortified with pleasure. Yes, oh God, yes. It all goes quiet for a bit after that. Crowley's skin stops singing. Not for long enough, but a bit. Later on, he forces himself out of bed, forces himself to shower, scrubs himself raw with the water, as hot as it will go, and the appropriate amount of self-loathing. It gets easier the not telling, the not speaking of it, the never speaking of it. Crowley swears this to himself over and over and over at bloody again, and hopes someday it will be true. Three years earlier. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Crowley hisses to himself, raking his hands through his hair, already damp with sweat. Christ, disgusting. He just has to go out there, and it's a bloody table read. It's not going to kill him. He's looked the script over hundreds of times. He's got the lines down. He's filmed himself, played it back. He just needs to... 
fuck, fuck. He grinds his teeth together, pacing around his trailer. His own trailer. And how many years has that been? He almost had a panic attack when they opened it up for him. All the lights and chrome and the granite countertops in the kitchen. Like he's going to start living there permanently. Maybe he should. Maybe he should lock the doors and refuse to come out. This is your chance, your last fucking chance, and you're ruining it. You're ruining everything. In five minutes, you're going to be late. You're fucked. You're fucked. You're... Water. Crowley needs water. Ten cigarettes. Ativan. Or other things. Things he's not allowed to have. Things he's not going to have. Even though his silver fillings ring with the want of it. He thinks about calling bees just to hear a voice other than his own. They'd scream at him, maybe. Tell him to get his head out of the bazaars. Threats? Obscenities? God love them. At least they're predictable. There's a knock on the door. Just a minute, he says, but his voice is like lace, barely audible. Fuck. He just needs a bit more time. Like a couple of hours, maybe. Another day at the absolute most. The knock comes again. I'm having a moment here, he snarls and then immediately tells himself off. Way to prove that you're ready to get back to work, chewing out the PA or whoever's coming to check up on you. Real classy behavior, asshole. Curly wipes his face with his hands and pulls open the door to apologize. But there's no PA waiting outside his door. Instead, all soft and rumpled, in a cardigan and a sweater vest, stands his co-star, Avery Bloody Fell. I'm sorry to interrupt, my dear. Might I come in? Uh, Crowley's very aware of what he looks like, of how blotchy his face is, the state of his hair. He isn't even wearing his glasses and feels basically naked without them, certain his eyes are wide and bloodshot. Uh, sure, if you want. Avery comes up the steps, peers inside the trailer. He's holding a tartan-patterned thermos that matches the plaid of his own stuffy bow tie. Good God, surely this is wardrobe's doing. Surely real people do not dress like this. Oh, this is very nice. What a lovely kitchen you have. Sure, yeah. What is he doing here? Crowley much prefers to have his mental collapses in solitude. It's less messy that way. You get a fair amount of light, don't you? And what a charming sofa. I dare say. Avery's eyes keep roving and it makes Crowley nervous. What is he looking for? What will he find? How will I ultimately let this new person down? Did you want something? Yes, of course. Listen to me going on. I brought you some tea. He offers the thermos. Crowley accepts it automatically, still a few steps behind in this interaction. Then he catches up, and he stares. It's lemon balm. Do you like that? Avery is clearly expecting some sort of response. I should have asked. If I wanted tea, Curly gestures clumsily toward the kitchen. Of course, I only thought that sometimes it's nice to have someone make it for you. Curly stares. I hope it isn't too strong. Didn't know how you took it. All the noise on the lot around them seems to fade into a dull hum a hive of bees or a charm of hummingbirds. Avery gives a fragile smile, as guarded as the first time they met, but not cold. Not at all. Thanks, Crowley says. 
His voice is like sawdust, and his mouth is the woodshed floor. Avery accepts the gratitude awkwardly, does a little shuffle like he can sidestep away from it. Well, no trouble. I'll see you out there in, goodness, in two minutes. Better leave you to it, hadn't I? He leaves in a harried sort of way, and the scent of him lingers in Crowley's trailer, which is bloody disturbing. He shouldn't know how his co-star smells. Not on day one, anyway. Crowley unscrews the thermos lid, inhales the blossom of rising steam. He isn't much one for herbal tea. Likes black coffee when he can get it. And this is in America. He can get it anywhere. He can wake up already drowning in the stuff. It's not the best for his nerves, but, you know, whatever does the trick. And yet, the smell of Avery Fell's tea in his fancy little thermos makes Crowley feel like he can breathe again. Must be drugged. Now that's a lovely thought. Maybe there are PRNs ground up and mixed in. Whatever it is, Crowley hasn't even taken a sip and it's already working. This has nothing to do with the other scent that still lingers in the air, that tweedy libraries and lamplight smell. And it has nothing to do with eyes the color of sunlight on a lake at the end of a long summer, or sometimes it's nice to have someone make it for you. It's none of those things. The tea's clearly drugged. But Crowley takes the thermos with him to the table read anyway, nurses the tea while they go round with introductions, and when it's time to start reading, he finds Avery's eye across the table, manages a grin, an awkward grin, one that feels carved on his face like a pumpkin, but it's something. And Avery smiles back, just a hint of sharp edges and humor in his eyes, and then they read their first lines together, and the whole damn world catches fire. After the Emmys in the sad L.A. flat, Crowley goes back to London. He kind of kicks around, waiting for Oz to get back from the States to join him. That sounds pathetic. It is rather pathetic. But Crowley's friends are thin on the ground these days. Some of his old ones have gotten back in touch since Warlock became a thing, but they aren't exactly the kind of people he wants around. Sure, they were good for a laugh, a fine group to go out and fuck up your life with, but he doesn't know what they talk about now. So he spends time in London mostly alone, remembering how to fall in love with it. He couldn't live there for almost ten years. It brought back too many memories he needed to... not repress exactly. Pepper has some thoughts about repressing things. But not wallow in, either. The city didn't feel safe, and he knew too many places he could score all man manner of terrible, lovely things. But now... Now it's starting to feel like home again. A feeling of home Crowley has to work at, rebuild like a torn muscle. But that's all right. He's got time to do the work. So he forces himself to go out exploring. He visits the little hidden restaurants and cocktail bars that rise and fall like waves. He finds the best place to look for secondhand records. He feeds the ducks. Frozen peas, right? That's apparently the thing. The ducks could really give a damn about it. They mostly ignore him. Or when they do acknowledge his presence, it's with a stare that's essentially duckish for where the fuck's the bread? Sometimes he goes to groups. Not often. It was easier before Warlock. Now people recognize him again, get all awkward and quiet, or else want to be best mates. It's fine. Groups haven't ever been his thing. Only when he got really desperate. 
only when that shark-toothed mouth in his chest started singing. Curly does better on his own, so he says, with a few notable exceptions. What are you doing? He's holding his phone in one hand, trying to open a bottle of wine with the other. I just got back from the gym. Curly has a brief vision of Az, all golden with sweat in the California sunshine, coming through the door in, what, shorts? Calves covered with pale blonde hair, muscles aching. Curly almost drops the wine bottle. Holy fuck. The, the gym. He ignores how broken his voice sounds. You? You needn't sound quite so staggered by it. Gabriel suggested it. Wait, why? He's instantly got his hackles up. He's only met Az's manager a few times, but Gabriel makes him want to break his own teeth. The way he talks to Avery, like he's doing Avery a favor by making money off of him, like Avery isn't that guy's fucking bread and butter. He thought... May I ask why I'm being interrogated? You do your whole wellness yoga jogging thing. That's because I'm a nightmare. A literal nightmare when I don't. But you, you're... Fuck, this conversation is heading into the rocky shallows. Get it back to open water. I'm what? Perfect. Ridiculous and impossible and perfect. Don't change a hair on your head. Don't iron out a wrinkle on your cardigan sleeve. A nightmare either way, I'm sure. Damn it to hell, will this wine bottle ever open? Curly tucks the phone against his shoulder, tries to bully the corkscrew. Well, if you must know, Gabriel did make a few pointed comments. He thinks I'm getting soft round the... You know. That miserable, goddamn, useless piece of... Curly's going to choke Gabriel with his precious Mark Jacobs scarf the next time he sees him. He clenches his teeth together so hard it's a miracle his molars don't crack. He's got some fucking nerve, I swear. Oh, stop. He makes a fair point, and there's continuity to think of. I have been rather enjoying myself. You are allowed to enjoy yourself. The cork pops free at last, buoyed by the power of Curly's righteous anger. At least his righteous anger is good for something. I didn't expect this to be a problem for you. Let's forget about it and talk about something else, something interesting. Fine, whatever. Just Curly pours himself a generous glass of Grenache to take the edge off his hatred. He stretches out on his sofa, balancing the glass on his knee and looking out at the city. Just don't let that prick, what, manage me? It's his job, dear. You are fine as you are, Curly mutters. Self-preservation or not, there are some things worth taking a stand for. And Curly will die on the battlefield of Avery Fell's loveliness. Just stick him full of spears or swords or whatever. He'll bleed out beautifully and regret nothing. Fine as I am. As lets out a sandpapery laugh. Yes, thank you so much for that ringing and enthusiastic endorsement. Curly forces himself to laugh, too, even though it tastes like pine needles. If Avery wants ringing enthusiasm, there is a whole prayer book of things Crowley could say to him. Crowley could absolutely do enthusiastic if that's what Az wants. Crowley could do bloody poetic as well. He's been reading a lot of Ishiguro, trying to work on his attention span. Instead, he's just become all introspective and moodier than ever. 
Don't even talk to him about never let me go. It's a whole fucking thing. But if As wanted poetry, he could have poetry. If As wanted fields of violets, if he wanted hymns and lighthouses and origami hearts folded and offered up in trembling, willing palms on bended knee, if As wanted begging... Anyway, in short, Crowley would scorch this earth and salt it, and he'd still have things to say about the man breathing gently on the phone with him. Or maybe not things to say, fuck saying things. Things to feel. To feel bad about, definitely. Things to want. Can't let you get too full of yourself, he manages. Of course not. As is rustling around doing something, and Crowley aches at the quiet domesticity of his life on the other side of an ocean, the other side of the world. How's London? As asks, moving things along. Noisy. Hot. How's L.A.? Noisy. Hot. Heard from Tracy? Still in Iceland with the ladies. As and Tracy have been together seemingly forever, but the two live quite separate lives. Maybe that's the reason they haven't split up yet, like all the other celeb couples. When Az is filming, Tracy is usually off somewhere with a pack of ladies, traveling, taking photos with enormous glasses of white wine. Curly sometimes sees her when she's in the city, but those times are few and far between. She loves it, of course. Sends me terrible photographs constantly. She's gotten rather into black and white, fancies herself the next Ansel Adams. How could you take terrible photos of Iceland? Oh, my dear, Tracy can take terrible photos of anything. It's a gift. Az's voice is so full of affection that it's blinding, even from 5,000 miles away. So what have you been up to lately, when you weren't berating me for the grievous sin of taking care of my physical health? Not much other than that, to be honest. Curly sips his wine, stares out of the window of his apartment. He's on the tenth floor, can see the lights of the city coming on around him. It makes him feel that odd combination of contentment and loneliness, all tried up with a ribbon like a wedding present. You should find a better hobby. But I enjoy this one so much. Plus, I've got the plants. I talk to them, don't I? He accidentally mentioned that to Az once, and the man found it completely charming. If he knew the real nature of the conversations Crowley and his ferns have, he would have second thoughts. Best not to get into it. Forgive me for not thinking that's an appropriate comparison. What's that sound in the background? Is as hell on earth is he getting changed? Getting ready to shower after the gym? Is he towing off his shoes, trying to get his kid off one-handed? You need a night out, dear. See a show. Hear some music. You know, there's this charming little bistro that Tracy and I visited. Is he standing in the bathroom? Goosebumps rising over his shoulders. Is there one clear drop of sweat traveling slowly down his spine the way Crowley might travel with his tongue? Crowley? What? Out. Oh, yeah, out. Yeah, maybe. Crowley takes a swick quick swig of wine to get the taste of Avery's skin out of his mouth. He only chokes a little. Brilliant recovery. You should have been a spy, mate. Worked from MI6. Maybe I will. Well then, be sure to let me know how it goes. There is amusement in Az's voice, a gentle sort of laughter that Crowley wouldn't tolerate from anyone else. 
But for Maz, it's like music, like the low, sweet line of a bass guitar wrapping its dark arms around Crowley's shoulders. Oh, did you read the new scripts yet? A whole Bible was delivered yesterday. I don't know if... Shit, the season three scripts are out? Maybe Bees has his. I haven't seen them. How are they? I'm going to settle in tonight to have a look. Let me know when you get them, assuming they haven't written you out of the show entirely. Oh, nice. Fine. If that's how you're going to be, I'll go solo. Have a spin-off series all about my roguish adventures. What roguish adventures are those? I don't know. Some sort of Monster of the Week setup. Maybe a bit of time travel with sexy results. Naturally. You've got to have sexy results these days, on account of millennials or something, probably. Makes perfect. <sighs> Gabriel's calling. Will you ring me later? There is a pause like the space between stars, the time between heartbeats. I mean, if you like. Might do. Crowley's attempt at sounding casual is the least casual he has ever sounded in his life. All right. Have a good evening, dear. You too, Angel. Crowley puts his phone down. He sits there looking out at London. Mates do this sort of thing, right? Call each other about nothing, talk about nothing, say dear and darling, as, and stare moon-eyed and yearning and half-smoldering, Crowley, at each other. It's a totally normal thing that friends do. It's nothing. It's nothing, he told Pepper a couple of days ago, sitting in her overwhelmingly welcoming office, walls covered with photographs that are probably supposed to be full of deeper meaning, close-ups of leaves, two entwined hands, a tree silhouetted against a sunset. Where does she even get this stuff? Did Tracy take them? Nothing. It's probably nothing. Nothing's the matter. He chews on his thumb now, can't stop. It's unattractive, but he gets anxious in these sessions. Feels like he's got to give the right kind of answer or she's going to call the press or something. It's fine. He's a friend, that's all. Hmm. Pepper always makes that sound when she's about to say something Crowley isn't going to like. Do you think part of you is drawn to him because he's off limits? No. Why would I want to get all fucked up over someone like that? Because if he were available, you might have to think about pursuing him. So, if you pursued him, you might have to consider yourself worthy of love. Huh. Well, so Pepper's fired. Fuck it. Curly picks the phone back up. Maybe Alice was right. Maybe he needs a night out. It's either that or stay in and finish reading When We Were Orphans not going to end well, or plan out how he's going to fire Pepper, also not going to end well. It hasn't happened yet, clearly, but maybe the next appointment, or the one after that, maybe. For all his wandering around London, he doesn't usually go to bars alone. He's never been much one for the scene, is way too old to fuck around at Double XL or Heaven, was thrown out of there once back in his younger days. But music is another matter entirely, and when he checks out the 100 Club's website, he finds out that the orchids are playing. Well, it's worth a shot. It's been ages since he's thought of that band, and fuck, their music takes him back. He gets his leather coat, 
fusses a bit with his hair, leaves the sunglasses at home. Sometimes he's less recognizable without them. What a thing. Cabs it to the venue, leans against the bar in the back in the darkness, remembering what it felt like to be young and dangerous. Remembering when none of his choices mattered because they were all the right ones, back when he was a lighter full of white flame and he'd never burn out. Avery isn't so much into music like this. He'd probably like the orchids. But on the softer side, Curly should take him out when he's back in London, make him go to one of the underground clubs Curly used to love. He'd bring earplugs so that Az could wear if it got too loud. They wouldn't have to stay if he didn't like it, but Curly thinks he'd like it. He can imagine it already, see Avery limed in stage light, glancing over at him and pulling a face, or maybe smiling. Smiles at Crowley a lot. Furtive smiles that Crowley peels away and saves for later. Presses them like flowers in books. And if the petals stay in the pages, he's not bothered. What are you drinking? There's a guy standing next to him. Handsome, in a way, with a scrappy Irish musician thing going on. Long hair, plaid shirt, artfully unshaven. He's a bit younger than Crowley, but not much. Probably. Crowley's a shit judge of people's ages. This? I think it's the dead pony. I mean, what do you have? Oh. Crowley takes a second look. The bloke's not unattractive, whoever he is. He's got nice eyebrows. I'm not particular, Crowley lies, like a liar. The scrappy musician goes with tequila shots, which is fine. Tequila is a young man's game, but whatever. Crowley fucking put on his leather jacket for this. He licks the salt off his hand, sucks on a slice of lime as this guy goes on about his songwriting process. He's got guitar-playing hands, broad-palmed and long-fingered and calloused when they brush against Crowley's wrist. The shots disappear and more follow them, and, well, it's been a long time. Judging from the way Avery's forearms made Crowley want to stuff his whole fist in his mouth, it's been a really, really long time. The band is singing Something for the Longing, which is, of course, killing Crowley faster than his cigarettes are. Won't you hold on to me, baby? Won't you hold on to me, girl? Three years. Three years he's been fucked up over Avery Fell. Count the days, the hours. Number them on your matchstick fingers and then light yourself on fire. Another round? Sure, all right. After a couple more shots of tequila, they're snogging like teenagers in the toilets, and Crowley is asking him back to his place. Didn't I ask for some loving? Something for the longing? They have a nice enough time when they get there. Christ, any physical contact that isn't his own hand feels like a fucking luxury right now. And maybe Crowley thinks briefly of Avery's soft pink mouth as Matt? Mark? Drags his lips over Crowley's stomach, rubs his stubbled cheek against Crowley's inner thigh. Maybe Crowley imagines pale curls clenched tight in his fist, swallows down a name that fits so easily in his mouth, chokes back the, fuck, yes, I love it, I love... You're so fit, Matt slash Mark hisses from somewhere in the dark, and it feels so fucking good to be wanted, so fucking good to be touched. Can I fuck you? 
Do you want that? Whatever you want, Angel. What is he doing? Just past the edge of the set, Avery has a couple of the kiddo extras gathered around him in a circle and is waving a handkerchief rather viciously in the air above his head. It looks like some sort of performance art, and Crowley feels hot with second-hand embarrassment. Hasn't he shown you yet? The makeup girl laughs, finishes brushing powder over his face. He fancies himself a magician. He does not. Curly can't believe that people yet exist who fancy themselves magicians, particularly not fussy British actors who carry around handkerchiefs. It's too good, too much. I worked with him on the last carnival. He said it was to keep the kids entertained. <laughs> you think? Nah, he's definitely more entertained than anyone else is. It seems about right. The kids in question are slowly shuffling away or turning back to their iPhones. Avery seems unbothered by their disinterest. In fact, in fact, he looks ridiculously pleased. There's a little smile on his face that Crowley feels the mad urge to touch with the pat of his thumb. Wants to stride across the set and reach out and... No, no touching. Where the fuck did that thought come from? They've only been shooting a couple of days. Surely Crowley can keep it together longer than that. Are we good, he asks makeup. I gotta see this. Go for it. Tell him he's got five minutes before I need him for touch-ups. Curly crosses the floor and waves the lingering children away, earning a few grateful glances as they scatter. I heard there were all sorts of dark magics going on over here. Curly! Another thing about Avery that's so damned unusual is how delighted he always is to see Crowley. Like, they're filming a series together. Couldn't get away from each other if they wanted to. And yet, Avery lights up when Crowley joins him for lunch. It makes something warm shift in the pit of Crowley's stomach. He's not used to being so welcome. Hello, dear. Oh, it's basic stuff, I'm afraid. Just a few things I picked up. Randomly picked up some magic tricks? On your travels? Something like that. It's, well, nothing extraordinary. But I've always thought that the most extraordinary thing of it all was the power... Avery produces a red carnation from the palm of his closed hand, clearly hiding up his sleeve. Of our imaginations! Curly gives him a dubious look, which is difficult since Avery is clearly so bloody pleased with himself. It's hard not to want to ruffle his hair, tell him how splendid he is, just to keep that lovely expression going a little bit longer. Oh, I see we have a skeptic on our hands. We. There's no one else watching. Let's see if we can't have you convinced. Look here. From his pocket, Avery produces an oversized gold coin, some sort of pirate doubloon from a costume shop. He swishes it around in front of Crowley's face, and Crowley regrettably feels the corner of his mouth pulling into a smile. No, no, you bastard. You're supposed to be cool. You are not supposed to be this easily amused. Bite down on it quick. But what if Avery snaps his fingers and the coin disappears? The man's look of wide-eyed shock and innocence makes Crowley bite down even harder. His smile wants to bloom like a golden algae in a lake and kill all the wretched fish. 
Aha, you see? Where could it have gone? Curly forces himself to keep his tone flat, to not be as charmed as he is. Well, I think it perhaps might be. Avery reaches forward quickly, hand brushing against Curly's neck, his cheek, his hair. His memory is a bit patchy the next morning. There are a lot of missing pieces. For example, he legitimately can't remember if it's Matt or Mark, and at this point, it seems bad form to ask. He vaguely remembers the angel slip-up, though he blames alcohol for that, and Matt slash Mark didn't comment on it, thank Christ. After Matt slash Mark finally leaves, and Crowley realizes he has several missed calls and four texts from bees, he tries to remember if he noticed all the flashes going off last night as he snogged his way out of the bar. Because clearly, based on the number of pictures of him with Matt slash Mark's tongue down his throat, there were enough flashes that somebody should have noticed. Someone who wasn't too many shots of tequila down the road to root. Maybe someone with a thimble's worth of self-preservation. Mother-buggering shit. Are you done? Bees asks, voice weary with disappointment. If you aren't, you might call back, or at least get him a little more creative with your language. Shit, Curly says anyway. God, he looks like a wobbly, lecherous spider in these photos. Is he trying to fit Matt slash Mark's entire head in his mouth? It's not as bad as it could be. It's not like the whole world has forgotten how gay you are. You see, Curly says weakly, some benefit of, of coming out publicly and unintentionally while high as bloody fuck got the whole mess out of the way. Yes, and we've only been trying to rehab your image for the past 15 years as a result. <sighs> shit, shit. Well, fuck my image. Everyone else gets to have sloppy nights out. Doesn't seem fair that it isn't fair, Bees interrupts. You know that. Leo can go out with his revolting wolf pack and wreck whatever clubs he wants, but you have to be an absolute monk or everyone is going to think, then bugger what they think. It was nothing. It meant nothing. It wasn't like, you're not helping your cause here. I was hoping you'd at least know this one's name. When Crowley doesn't say anything, Bees buzzes like an angry fly. Crowley, I know his name. What is it then? It's confidential. You miserable. Listen, I've been on the phone all morning assuring everyone that you haven't fallen off the wagon entirely, that you weren't back to your old... Another call is coming in, and Crowley pulls away briefly to check it. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, no. How are they even up at this hour? Bees, I'm sorry. I have to take this. You had better call me back immediately. We're going to need a plan. You can't just... He doesn't find out what he can't just do, though he's certain the list is long and colorful and peppered with invective. But he can't afford to wait. He's already squeezing his eyes shut and getting up off the couch to pace. He answers the incoming call like he's biting into a cyanide capsule. Shit, shit, shit. Hello, Mum. There's a pointed silence on the other end of the phone. Then, Anthony. 
Hello, what's this? Avery touches the space behind Crowley's ear, where the skin is so soft and sensitive. Goosebumps spring up all over Crowley's shoulders and neck, and he doesn't lean into the touch. He doesn't. But God, how he wants to. Avery pulls back, and there's a gold coin in his hand. And he's looking Crowley dead in the eyes, and his smile is a key in a lock that Crowley swore was permanently rusted shut. Calling to say hi, catch up? So nice of you. Haven't heard from... A reporter from the Mirror contacted your father this morning, asking about you. Yeah? Brilliant. Warlock's doing pretty well, I guess. Their questions were more to do with certain photographs of yourself and another person taken yesterday evening. You are, of course, aware of these? Yep. Curly pops the piece sharply in irritation. That'll show her. These are the acts of rebellion he is reduced to. This reporter was quite curious as to whether your father and I had concerns over your physical and mental health currently. Any past tendencies that may... Oh, I see. All right. You want another drug test, is that it? I'm clean. It's under control. It did not look like you were under control in those photographs. It looked like you could barely walk. That's just the way I walk. And your <sighs> friend in the picture, is that someone we should be aware of? Curly wonders how shatterproof the glass on his apartment windows really is. No. Ah. He can feel the heat of his mother's judgment through the phone line. You might, in future, consider the way these nights out affect public perception of your family, not just yourself. You might remember who it was that supported you the first time this sort of thing happened and where you ended up. Breathe in. Breathe out. Focus on the gold of the coin in Avery's hand, how his fingers brushed the shell of your ear and his eyes lit up as he looked at you, like you were the thing that was golden. Like you had disappeared, but he had brought you back. Magic. And you might remember that I'm a nearly 50-year-old man who is not committing any crimes here. If people have nothing better to be interested in than who I get off with. Is that sort of language really... I have to go now. My manager is calling. And you have your priorities. I see. Well, go on then, but if there are more photographs in the future, there won't be. God and Satan and all the rest, Crowley's going to live like a monk and a hermit for the rest of his life. He's going to find a cave on an island or something, build a brick wall around it, take a vow of silence and a vow of celibacy, and die silently. There. Is that better? He'll give up anything that makes him a living, breathing person with pores and taste buds and all that revolting stuff. Completely distasteful. Can you even imagine? I can't imagine what it was like, Avery told him once. They were halfway through season two, out for dinner in that pub in Ireland that never seemed to have anyone else there, even though the food was pretty good. Avery had already polished off a bowl of beef stew and was taking his time with some treacly pudding situation that he clearly enjoyed a bit too much. Crowley was watching him eat. It was a thing he did sometimes. Don't think about it. And because he was relaxed a couple pints in and stupidly happy, he'd let his guard down. Let the conversation somehow find its way to the topic of parents. Coming from that sort of family surrounded by artists, did you watch their films growing up? Did they watch yours? 
not bloody likely. Curly steadies his rattling hand by holding onto the edge of the table. They, anything I made wasn't that impressive to them. It was all soft stuff, you know? Not like they're serious art. Serious art? My dear, you certainly. Anyway, doesn't matter. What were your folks like? As gave him a look that could cut glass. I, they were, Curly already knows, as if he hasn't Googled that very fell, as if he hasn't looked him up on IMDb. He knows that Az came from a working-class sort of family, son of a hairdresser and a mill worker. Knows that the arts weren't an option for him until he got a scholarship to Old Vic. Knows that all these affectations, the bow ties and cravats and posh bloody manners, are probably attempts to cover up a childhood that was anything but posh. Whereas Crowley came from money. It's why he spent his twenties in ripped jeans and safety pins, working up in gutter, waking up in gutters, trying to choke his privilege down like wine that had gone off weeks ago. Embarrassed by his soft life and what he'd done with it. Jesus, what a prat he was. Is. They weren't exactly supportive at first. My mother died before I really started getting work, which, well. But my father is still alive, still living in the same house. He let me fix it up a bit, but wouldn't hear of moving. Has his pride, doesn't he? As his accent has gone a bit northern suddenly, just the mention of his father bringing it back. Curly has to steady his other hand on the table as well. Minor in Florida now, have a place in Palm Beach, still together even, for better or worse, mostly for worse. Mom does a bit of acting now and then. Yes, I know, she was in that film two years ago. Was nominated for an Oscar? Probably. Sounds like her. Curly knows exactly the film Az is talking about, a terrible Alzheimer's movie called Offerings that he's sobbed through from basically start to finish. He'll never admit that to anyone, of course, least of all his mother. I'm sorry your mom didn't get to see you, you know? Make it big? Bet she would have been proud. You don't have to say that, As looks away, glances down, blushes a bit at the tips of his ears. He's got a shadow of stubble on his jaws. There's been a lot of tromping around in the wilderness this season, so both of them are looking rather grizzled. Curly thinks it's not a bad look on As, surprising no one. He wants to touch it with his hand or with his mouth. Wants to rub his face against it like a cat might. He can't imagine it would be anything but soft. I'm sure your parents are very proud as well, As says. Oh yeah, Curly says with a smile that makes his teeth hurt. Proud as I'll get up. Absolutely chuffed. We do worry about you, his mum says as an afterthought. Of course we do. We only want to ensure you're making the best choices for everyone in your life. Yes, I get that. We don't want you to forget where you were ten years ago. Not much chance of that, is there? Not when I can't put a toe out of line without the mirror ringing you. I don't appreciate your tone of voice. I had hoped you'd be feeling suitably ashamed of your behavior. Crowley sighs, wonders if it's possible to asphyxiate himself by sighing deeply enough. That'd be a good trick. Gotta go, Mom. Lots of love. Anthony. Well, folks are always a pleasure. How many more times can he apologize? 
How much longer does he crawl on his belly like a snake? How many more years does he live with ashes in his mouth? How many? At least a few more, right? Right. He doesn't call bees back. It'll hurt more later, but he's still going to put that conversation off for as long as he possibly can. They've got things under control, probably. Possibly. Don't need Crowley in their ear mucking it all up. He goes for a jog instead. Ugh, jogging is the worst, but it quiets down his head some, so it's a necessary evil today. The sky is gray and muddy and overcast, absolutely the sort of sky he deserves today. Crowley stretches in the park and then flops dramatically onto the lawn and sends the bloody text he should have sent hours ago. Hey, it's Anthony from last night. Don't know if you saw the photos, but I hope you're okay. Wasn't something I wanted to happen. Sorry if this is kind of a mess. If you need to talk about it, let me know. A reply comes almost instantly. Hi, I'm glad you texted. It's all good, I'm good. Pretty shit photos, but I've had worse ones on Instagram. Winky face. Had a nice time with you. Let me know if you ever want to do it again. Curly is kind of shy with texts, so he just sends you two back and considers his job done. Pat on the shoulder, gold star. One human interaction you didn't completely poison today. He smokes two cigarettes as a reward before jogging home. He showers, puts on something black and soft, and then just waits. Thinks about what time it is in L.A. Thinks about what Avery might feel when he sees photos of Crowley getting his face sucked right off. He'll think you're a revolting drunk, the devil on his shoulder tells him. He'll think you're a mess, and he'll not want anything to do with you. Nah, he won't give a shit, the other devil says. Yeah, Crowley knows there's supposed to be an angel on one, but he's just got two demons, one of them a bit uglier than the other. Avery doesn't care what you do. He isn't bothered. He certainly won't be jealous. You could kiss all of London in front of him, and he wouldn't feel a thing. Ugh, fuck off, Crowley tells both of them, heading into the kitchen to drink three glasses of water in a row while holding his breath. That'll shut him up for a bit. While he's halfway through the second glass, his phone rings. And it's Avery. Great. Brilliant. Get it out of the way. Spread the trauma around like jam on toast. Hello? Have you seen it? The scripts? Have you read them? The greeting throws Crowley. He hasn't even thought of the scripts since they spoke yesterday. Uh, no, I forgot to ask bees. Is everything okay? I thought you were calling about the photos. What photos? Oh, it's... Have you been online at all? I've been reading season three all morning, and you haven't. You don't know. Know what? His hand tightens around his glass. Oh, shit, they're killing him off. They're killing him off, and this is how he's going to find out about it. Gabriel called me yesterday about it. That's why I... But I wanted to read them first before we discussed anything. It was just a bit surprising. What is it? Am I dying? Are they killing me? No, you... I can take it. Just tell. I'm falling in love with you. Crowley very carefully puts his water glass back on the counter before sinking slowly to the floor. He lives there now. His legs will never work again. He must have missed her. He has to have. 
I... How is he making words right now? How is he not bleeding out, lying a pool, in a pool on the marble tiles, turning wet and red? Sorry, you... Avery... Avery what? In season three. Can you believe it? Oh. Last season it was a crisis of faith. Now it's a crisis of sexuality. One crisis after another. Oh. I think it's done fairly well. On my first read, I'm sure a lot will change. It always does, doesn't it? Oh. I wanted to talk to you about it, though. Make sure you thought... Curly fists one of his hands against his forehead, shuts his eyes tightly, breathes out through his nose, a long, slow stream of air. Okay, so... Az is going to spend this season falling in love with him. That's, that's completely. Uh, Curly slides the rest of the way down to the floor, lets his head thunk against the tiles. Maybe he won't fire Pepper just yet. Remember that oyster bar in Brooklyn? The unexpected reunion? The let me tempt you? the slow, hot candle of Crowley's regard against the narrow table. There's more to that story. Let's finish it. Az is in the city visiting friends, and Crowley is there hanging off the Lower East Side like a shadow. After he left rehab for the last time, he promised himself that he gave up the hard stuff. He got to disappear inside New York at least once a year. So far, he's kept both of his promises. He and Az eat oysters. Mostly as does, while Crowley watches him. Not in a creepy way, or maybe just a little bit creepy way. But hopefully that's part of his dubious charms. When they're finished, and Crowley's head is swimming slightly with mezcal, Avery asks, Would you like to see a show? The answer is really, no, Crowley wouldn't. He'd rather take As for coffee and dessert somewhere. Buy him something sweet hassle him gently when he dabs his mouth like some sort of Victorian dandy. God help him, when did this become Crowley's thing? When did a smack of Avery, Avery's lips and a single shy glance turn into the equivalent of foreplay? Maybe Crowley sustained a head injury he isn't aware of, frontal lobe damage that left him permanently in this sunburnt state of longing. Anyway... The answer is no. No, Crowley clearly doesn't want to go to some underground, off-Broadway, modern-day Hamlet reimagining in a converted warehouse. But when Avery Fell pins you down in that cornflower blue stare of his, bites down on a smile that has wings on it, how are you going to say no? Why in God's name would you ever want to? Sure, whatever, Crowley tells him, and the resulting expression on Avery's face could power the whole of New York City. So they go to the play. It's good enough. Crowley's seen a lot of Hamlet over the years. Never played him, that's a pity. But the actor gives a hell of an effort. Their Hamlet has a bit of a swagger, a bit of a sideways grin, and it shouldn't work. Hamlet shouldn't be so charming, but somehow it does. Crowley's an admitted snob about Shakespeare, like it sits serious and straightforward. But the cast are enthusiastic and energetic, and it's a bit of fun. More transfixing than anything on stage are the shifting emotions in Avery's face. 
the delight, the pain, that moment during Ophelia's soliloquy where Avery reaches over and briefly touches Crowley's arm. The bloke who plays Ophelia is also very good, an otherworldly sort of look to him, but it's tough for Crowley to keep his eyes on the stage after that arm touch. It's tough not to tilt his head slightly toward Avery, not to drink up every expression the man makes and let them burn like whiskey down his parched throat. Avery is the first on his feet when the curtains close. Crowley reluctantly joins him, betting every cent he has that as is the kind of person who gives every show a standing ovation. He seems, he seems absolutely the type. As leans close enough to be heard over the sound of the applause, murmurs directly in Crowley's ear, Wonderful. And Crowley nods and thinks about how bright Avery's eyes are, even in the darkness. After the play, they find some late-night dessert place, and it all goes according to plan. Crowley drinks black coffee and hassles Az gently. Az eats a slice of blueberry lavender cheesecake and dabs his lips with a napkin, full-on Victorian dandy. And God, don't ever let him see the way you look at him. You'll send him into cardiac arrest. After Avery makes a particularly obscene noise of appreciation for the blueberry compote, Crowley decides that this maybe was the best play he's seen in his life. He's ready to commit to any underground show as likes, scour the theater section of the Times for the absolute worst reviews if it means he gets to end the evening like this. It's worth it, worth every second of it. Too bad about the turnout. Avery is lamenting on the other side of his napkin. Crowley tries to pay attention. Half the seats were empty. I saw it last night as well, and the attendance was about the same. They really are doing such interesting things with the characters, don't you think? Crowley ignores the fact that As saw the bloody play yesterday as well and says, Yeah, I liked it. And what he means is, I liked the outline of your face under the stage lights, liked the way you laughed, the audible gasp you made when Polonius was killed. Such a young, exciting theater company, I'd hate to see them go under because of this show. A real shame. Theater companies go under all the time. That's the business of it. But Crowley doesn't say that, wouldn't dare, not when Avery is looking at him with a smudge of blueberry cheesecake at the corner of his mouth. Crowley can nearly taste the sugar on his tongue. You've, you've got something. He gestures vaguely at Avery's face. Yes, thank you, my dear. More napkin dabbing. Crowley feels like a snake on a sun-warmed rock, and that's the only reason for the idiocy that comes next. Let me see what I can do about your precious Hamlet. As freezes, fork of cheesecake halfway to his mouth. Really? I've got a few people I can talk to. Theater sorts, he offers too casually. And Avery, damn him, looks at Crowley like he hung the fucking moon in the dark sky, scattered diamonds across it, and called it good. Damn it all if Crowley wouldn't walk through hellfire to see that expression again. Crowley, will you really? Thank you. That's splendid of you. Is he going to regret this? Possibly. But that's future Crowley's problem, and fuck that guy. When he gets back to his hotel that night, he showers and paces, and we can't, when he can't put it off any longer, he sends a text to Charles Bloody Isherwood. 
Remember a few years back you wanted to do that out in Hollywood story? I've changed my mind. I'll do it. Ask me anything. The bastard theater critic responds immediately, time of night be damned. Why? Crowley winces to himself, trying not to throw his phone across the room. He likes to keep his personal life as private as possible, has been avoiding doing interviews like this for most of his career, and certainly since his comeback or whatever, if that's what we're calling it. Avery's hand is on his arm, overcome with Ophelia's low, sad voice, and I of ladies most deject and wretched that sucked the honey of his music vows. Curly does not throw his phone across the room. You have to see a play first. The Incredibly Queer Adventures of Hamlet is a surprising underground hit. It's written up in the Times, gets a couple of think pieces written about gender and art on medium. Curly does what he promised and answers some stupid questions about his romantic life, none to speak of, and what it's like to be a gay man working in the industry, and who his celebrity crush is. He says, Postman Pat. Good steady job, nice cat. Obvious choice, really. And it's fine. He survives. It's worth it, because as texts him the day the Times article comes out, Did you do this? And even though Crowley can't see his face, he can imagine that smile spreading like sunlight over his neck and jawline, making him want to tilt his head back and just bask. It's worth it. Two years later, they're sitting around a fire somewhere in North Clare, middle of the bloody Irish woods. Eerie amber firelight licks against the planes of Avery's face. He looks like a Caravaggio painting, or whoever the one with the dramatic light was. Maybe there was more than one. Probably was. Anyway, He's lovely, is the point here. Anathema is with them, wrapped in her threadbare cloak, so worn you can almost see through it. The air is cold, their breath coming in gusts of damp cotton candy. Curly's whole body is frozen, except for the warmth against his side, where the bloody three-year-old clings like a limpet. For fuck's sake, Adam doesn't even need any direction. Never has. He's always climbing all over Crowley, tugging at his sleeve, trying to hold hands. Right now, he might actually be asleep beneath Crowley's arm, unbothered by the lights and the director shouting. How come kids always find the one person that's most useless with them to glom onto? They're like cats. If we stay here, they'll find him, Anathema says, with a glance at the scruffy thing snoring against Crowley's ribs. Be a lot less trouble for us if they did. His voice is tight, and he's fooling no one. We could go north, Avery says quietly, and his eyes lift from the fire to find Crowley's face. Their gazes hold for a moment before Avery swallows and looks away. Curly's trying to get used to being looked at like that. It's an adjustment, the way you might adjust to a stab wound. It's just going to get colder. And how long do we keep running, eh? Forever? If we must? Avery glances up at him again, glances down at his hands. There's a hint of pink in his cheeks, and it isn't from the fire. Go again, the director calls out. Avery, just pull the longing back a little bit. Can you try that? It's all out there in the open, 
naked. Look at him like, like you can't let him see the way you look at him. As nods, saying nothing. Curly can almost hear the wheels grinding in his head, the performance slotting into place. That talented bastard. Yes, please, just keep on with these half-hidden looks of restrained longing. It's not going to kill Crowley or anything. They take it twice more until Michael's happy with it. Crowley gets to meet Avery's eyes across the fire twice more. See the shy desire hidden there. See the conflict, the doubt, the ghost of want that doesn't know its want yet. Each take is its own unique sort of intolerable. Do I look like that at him, Crowley wonders? Has Az seen this expression mirrored in my eyes? Would my sunglasses ever be enough to hide that moon-bright yearning? Or does the whole sky light up like colorful gunpowder the 4th of fucking July when he's within sight? After they wrap for the night, Adam's mum comes and lifts the sleeping kid from Crowley's arms, gives him a smile that's as warm as the fire. He's mad about you, she says. And Crowley scoffs, rolls his eyes, all the things he likes to do to shrug off kindness. You're lovely with him. <sighs> yeah, well, he's a good kid. He inexplicably clears his throat, just to seem as uncomfortable as possible. Do you ever think about having one, she asks, shifting Adam to her hip. And Crowley clears his throat a few more times for good measure. Anathema is yawning, stretching her arms up over her head, and Avery comes round to offer Crowley a hand up. Crowley takes it, trying not to look too much at Avery's face. He just needs a bit of time after filming, a bit of distance, or he sees echoes there, watercolor copies of the scenes they were just in. It's Crowley's imagination, and he knows it, but that doesn't lessen the sting. Your hands are freezing, he says, as Avery pulls him to his feet. Well, yes, we've only been on the run in the woods for the past three weeks. Perhaps Anathema can magic you a pair of woolly mittens next episode. I'll speak to Michael about it. Oh, would you? As gives him a look of fond exasperation, but Crowley will take any look that starts with fond. I'd appreciate it ever so. Ask her for a muffler as well. See if we can stumble upon a hot spring. With sexy results? Crowley waggles his eyebrows. Christ. Waggles. Really? Second thought, I might not suggest the hot spring or the sexy results. The horseman would be too into it. Change the whole tone of the show. The four producers, known around set in whispers as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like to pop by now and then and talk about ratings. Ask whether Anathema needs to go bathing in a rock pool now again, or whether there could be a barmaid added to that inn scene. And maybe one thing leads to another and she shows up in Crowley's room? Character development, that. Luckily, Michael has enough friends in high places that she's able to shut down most of these suggestions. Bathing in a rock pool? In the middle of fucking winter? but Crowley certainly won't be mentioning any hot springs in the future. The producers would be entirely too likely to listen. A shuttle is waiting to drive them back to the hotel in Lisden, and Crowley swaps into the van like a dead man, ready for a hot shower and a decent night's sleep before their call time tomorrow. 
Avery is quiet and still beside him as they drive back, and Anathema falls asleep pretty much instantly. Adam and his parents have their own vehicle, all kitted up with kid stuff. You okay? Curly nudges Avery after the quiet goes on a bit long. There's not a lot of light out on these rural roads, but the nav of the van is lit up pale blue, and it highlights all the lines around Avery's eyes, the furrow between his eyebrows. Just tired, a bit chilled. Poor soft git, Curly says with a quirk of his mouth, rubbing one hand briskly over Az's arm. They've got blankets in the van and the heat is blasting, but Az is still frozen to the touch. We'll be back at your posh hotel soon. You can have a soak in a tub full of rose petals. Az rolls his eyes at him but doesn't reply. He shifts slightly and his shoulder presses up against Crowley's. If he notices, he doesn't mention it. They're silent for a while, though Crowley can hear his heartbeat pounding anxiously in his skull, right up underneath his forehead. He can feel the heat of Az's arm against his, wants to pull him close, put an arm around him, rub some warmth back into his skin. Instead, he stares out the window, watching the dark nothingness roll past. The heartbeat in his skull keeps time with Az's steady breathing. A little while later, he realizes Avery's head is slumped forward. The man's fallen asleep, chin nearly touching his chest, pale hair illuminated by the van's interior lights. Poor soft git, Curly murmurs again, like he's saying three entirely different words. He barely chokes on each of them. When they get to the hotel, Avery gives him an exhausted wave of goodnight and Curly stumbles off to his room, shoulders still smelling like Avery's posh shampoo and posher cologne. There's been a lot of these nights lately, polite goodbyes in doorways, both of them too weary to make conversation, even over excellent scotch, which Avery certainly has squirreled away in that room of his. Curly toasted him with it the first night in Lisdoon. The season's been more physical. They've been climbing up hills and picking over stone paths. There have been a couple of action sequences, and while it's mostly stand-ins that have get to have the real fun, Curly's probably in better shape now than he's ever been. Davery is tired. That much is clear just from looking at him. It works on the show, the weariness that's in his shoulders sometimes. Not that he can't shrug it off at a moment's notice, putting everything aside for the camera. But when the cameras stop rolling, as sinks into himself, gets smaller and quieter than he used to. He gives his regrets when Crowley asks him to dinner, declines the late-night glasses of wine or cups of tea. On their most recent shared day off, Crowley had been all set to drag Azza out exploring the woods around his dune. Not his style at all, but he thought Az would like it. He'd made a thermos of that revolting oversweet cocoa and bought a couple of pastries from that shop in town Az loves only to be told that his co-star was going to spend the day catching up on my reading. Apologies, my dear. The Pratt did take the pastries, though, because he hasn't changed that much. Curly was so put out that he went hiking by himself. Hiking! Spent a day in his stupid bloody nature, overthinking anything he might have done or said to make as tired of him, and freezing his arse off back in his black leather jacket, but looking extremely cool while doing so. 
He even stumbled upon a few ducks in his travels, and he didn't feed them out of spite. He actually rings Tracy about it on their second week back. Is Az sick? he asks, right out the gate like a madman. Oh, pigeon. Tracy sounds more conflicted than the simple question warrants. No, he's... It's... You know, been a tough season on him. Never fret. He'll be back to his old self soon enough. Now they're three weeks in, ready to wrap on this location, and Az is certainly not back to his old self. Sometimes he gets a grim look on his face right before a scene begins, like he's being led into battle and not onto set to do a job he loves. Sometimes he rolls his shoulders, rolls his neck, pinches the bridge of his nose like someone whose entire body is made of cracked porcelain. Crowley wants to touch him. He always does, right, but now he wants to touch him in other ways as well. He wants to put his thumbs on either side of Az's spine, dig deep into the muscles where the angst lives, it's basic science, and rub the exhaustion away. He wants to run his fingers through Avery's hair and up the bristles on the back of his neck. He wants to make the bastard purr. When Avery ducks his head and turns silently into his hotel room at the end of a long day, Crowley wants to stop him with a hand on his sleeve. Wants to say, wait a minute, don't leave yet. Let me, let me fix this. Let me buy you something sweet. Let me find you something shiny. Let me be a magpie for you, distract you with treasures and colored glass and bits of bone. Let me tell you stories. I have so many stories for you. Did I ever tell you about the time I met Julie Andrews at my parents' dinner party? Did I tell you the one where I was driving the Bentley, so stoned I didn't realize it was on fire until I was pulled over? Let me tell you all the disastrous things I've done until you smile and roll your eyes and forget whatever is hanging off your shoulders. Good night is what Crowley says instead. Very polite, very appropriate of him. Then he goes back to his room and does not sleep. Sometimes he'll try to meditate, and sometimes he'll read, and sometimes he'll have a series of unbearable conversations with himself. Crowley, you bastard, are you still listening? I don't care how soft and tired he looks. Keep your eyes and hands to your fucking self. When he ultimately gives up on all of that, he'll turn back to the season three scripts. Because, as it happens, there's a kiss. Of course there is. There's no interventionist god worth her salt that wouldn't put a kiss in this fucking season, wouldn't try to test Crowley to the point of destruction. The kiss is in a dream sequence. It is the 16th century. No one's snogging after only one season of pining. Gotta draw it out, earn those ratings. Then kill off one of them, probably, and get hauled across the coals for queer baiting, most likely. Michael holds the plot points pretty close to her chest, but there have been a couple of seeds this season that hint at something brewing between Anathema and Crowley. And what is she, like, 20 years younger, at least? Eh, seems about right. Anyway, there's a kiss. Crowley has read the scene too many times to be entirely healthy. Avery is dreaming. He's in the woods and alone, and it's just approaching nightfall. Then a vision comes creeping like gnarled roots out of the darkness between trees. Crowley, clean-shaven and soft-skinned. 
Crowley reaching out, touching Avery's jaw, kissing his mouth, shoving him against a tree, sinking to his knees. The scene is supposed to make Avery think he's being tempted, that his feelings for Crowley are a test, that something demonic has planted them there and is waiting for them to blossom. It's supposed to motivate Avery to hate himself even more, make him put some distance between their characters, and they've never talked about it. We should probably talk about it. The, you know, the photos. You've seen them, yeah? As has just gotten back to London, skin's still a bit golden from the kiss of L.A. sunlight. He's gone round to Crowley's for dinner, has been nattering gentle things at the plants all night, and Crowley can't stop looking at him. He doesn't know why he brings up the photos. It just feels like he has to be the one to address it before Avery does. Get ahead of the damage. Control the story or the spin or whatever bees might shriek at him from across the desk or over the phone. The, uh, which photographs are those? Curly rolls his eyes heavenwards. The ones of me and that bloke outside the club. You must have seen them. Bees has been tearing me to shreds for lo these many weeks. Ah, yes, those. As isn't looking at him. He's studying his plate instead, apparently fascinated with a bit of roasted cauliflower. Curly's made a vegetable lasagna, and it's passable. He doesn't cook much for himself, and he's no great artist, but he enjoys making an effort now and again. Besides, he and weeknights with Giada have an understanding. I wanted to make sure you weren't worried about it. Curly forges ahead, since Avery clearly knows what he's talking about. It's not a problem. Did a drug test, even? You did. Avery's mouth is a line of white ink across his face, tense and unhappy. Yeah, of course, to stop the horsemen from going mental. I volunteered. You don't have to look like... You shouldn't have had to. Volunteer, I mean. It's invasive. It's demeaning. Nah. Crowley shakes his head, wishing viciously he wasn't the type of person who could casually discuss drug testing over lasagna. Wishes he was a respectable sort, a proper actor, the kind of person someone Avery Fell would... would... But there's no use wishing for any of that. What's the Ishiguro line he had to write down shortly after flinging his book across the room in anguish? There is another life I might have had, but I am having this one. No more books, Crowley decides. They only make him thoughtful. And he's fucking insufferable when he's thoughtful. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He stares at the stem of his wine glass, afraid of what he might see across the table. Once you've done them enough, it's like any other old test. I don't mind, and they're within their rights, I'm sure. If you knew me back then, I know you now. Crowley snaps his eyes up to Avery's face. It happens without thinking. Avery is watching him the way that Crowley never could, open and unashamed, clear-eyed with certainty. It only lasts a moment before As goes pink, gives him a rueful little smile, and looks back at his half-eaten lasagna. But that moment is enough. Curly will keep it with all the others he's been storing up for the winter. When he inevitably sends this all to hell, when As gets tired of his bullshit and stops speaking to him, Curly will have that lovely dragon's hoard to curl around. 
This is divine, by the way, as says, perfect bechamel. Even an inane compliment over subpar lasagna feels like a lot right now. Curly mutters his thanks, heart raw and ragged and in his bloody throat. The uh, gentleman in the picture with you, as swallows. The sound of forks and knives scraping over stoneware suddenly seems very loud. He seemed very. Are the two of you? Nope. Seconds, more wine. Would you like? I'll just go get the bottle. Back in a tick. He gets up from the table so quickly he almost knocks his chair over. And it's off to the kitchen before As can say another word. Any mention of Crowley being in a relationship can only go down two paths. One, Avery is a bit too delighted. Been on your own for so long. Wonderful news. Well done, you. Glory, glory, hallelujah, etc. That would be like a knife to the carotid artery. No bloody thank you. The other, more unlikely option is that Avery will be upset. Possibly some shade of jealous. Or he'll be indifferent. And Crowley will read that indifference as something else. He's always grasping with starving hands at any hint of affection. And then he'll start talking and he won't be able to stop. He'll start assuring as that it's nothing. The man in the photograph means nothing. No, God, no, it's you. You're the only one. So Crowley gets the wine and pours them both another glass. And they don't say anything more about the photographs. Thank God for that. Pepper Skypes Crowley at the hotel for weekly sessions, checks up to see how he's doing, looking to the, into the mirror of his own poisonous desire almost every fucking day on set. The answer? Not great. The first few scenes were the worst. As is such a brilliant actor, it was startling to see how he could pull all that longing to the surface of his skin, could glow with it like a lantern across a lake when he turns his gaze toward Crowley. Crowley's seen that expression on Avery's face in his dreams, seen it in snatches of tipsy fantasies where Avery looks at him just like that. Oh, my dear, you're so good at this. So lovely. Yes, perfect. Perfect. There. Can you feel how I want you? Do you know? I want you so much, so much, darling, more than anything. But after nearly three weeks of this... Crowley's almost gotten used to it. Or, no, not used to it. He'll never get used to it. Never. But he starts to expect it. A dangerous thing, that. Sometimes between takes, he catches Avery looking at him blankly and thinks, What's wrong? What have I done to... Oh, oh, right. You don't love me. Fuck's sake, when this season's finally wrapped, Crowley is going to look over at Avery and see the indifference in his eyes and turn into a slab of bloody marble. But until then, they won't talk about it. When Az is shooting scenes by himself, Crowley wanders around the lovely little spa town, peering into shops and occasionally going for runs, doing yoga in the privacy of his hotel room and lounging in cafes with a paperback and dark glasses. He knows he's a cliché, all right? He knows. But he's invested a lot of years in it. Can lounge with a paperback in his sleep these days. And he refuses to apologize for style. When they have days off, together, rare enough, but it happens, 
Avery keeps to himself. Sometimes they'll have breakfast together, grab a coffee. But more often than not, the knocks on Az's hotel room door go unanswered. Curly vacillates wildly between deep concern and flayed open self-loathing, but he's a professional. Or at least he's trying. He can love Avery with blackened fingertips from a cringing distance, and they can exchange looks of hopeless longing on set, and they can kiss on camera. Curly's counting down the scenes left before they film it. Michael's saving it for the last day because she's a fucking sadist. And they can never talk about it. Until one night they do. It's their second last evening in Lisdoon, and it feels like any other. As says goodnight with a shrug and a tired smile, Curly watches him walk away while pretending he isn't. He goes back to his room, tells himself that things will be better after this episode is done. They get a week off before the studio pieces, as can rest up, get some sleep, get back to his old self. If Curly's done something wrong, he'll find out what it is, and he'll fix it. Maybe he'll invite Avery to that Italian place he discovered near his apartment. Pasta always does the trick when it comes to lifting Avery's spirits. Or maybe he'll convince him to see a rock show at one of those clubs if he likes. No pressure, just might be a thing to try. Might be fun. Whatever you want, Angel. So Crowley isn't sleeping. He's ruminating. Never a good look. He's just gotten out of the shower and is contemplating a guided meditation when there's a knock on the door. He's in sweats and a jumper, feeling altogether too soft and vulnerable to deal with anyone right now. He contemplates throwing his leather jacket over top, but thinks that might be odd. He peers into the hallway to see Avery holding a bottle of that lovely scotch. Can I come in, he asks, and of course, of fucking course he can. Avery's hair is wet, so is Crowley's. Curly imagines that their skin both tastes of the same hotel soap. As pours them drinks and then downs it quickly, tops it up. He doesn't sit, but paces around the room cagily, gesturing with the glass in his hand. We're almost finished then, as is muttering brightly, almost to himself. Won't that be nice? Some time to recover. Expect Trace will be glad to have you back. Of course, yes, as nods once, then nods a bit more. Curly watches him from the armchair, drumming his fingers on the glass and his knees and any other surface within reach. Christ, both of them are radiating anxiety. It's a wonder they aren't bringing down satellites. Just have to get through tomorrow and then home free for a week, at least. Wonderful. Yeah, that'll be uh, good. Yes, very good. Yep. I think we should kiss. Curly almost spits out his scotch. You what? Because, because tomorrow. Avery takes another swallow of his drink, winces, and then sets the glass down on the dresser. It should look natural. You're a fantasy. You're supposed to be well-practiced. What makes you think I'm not? Curly's a little bit offended, but mostly terrified. I didn't mean just the two of us together. You know how first kisses are sometimes. At least, perhaps that's just me. 
Fuck. Fuck's sake. Avery's pacing has taken him over to the door, and he stands there staring at Crowley as if there's any chance Crowley would say no to this. Crowley imagines saying no. Imagines what the word would feel like in his mouth. Would it be enough to save him, save them both? Or would it just be delaying the inevitable fall? The kiss in the script that swings over both of their heads. Yeah, all right. As his mouth wobbles, a million different expressions across his face all at once. Really? Sure, Angel. Well, whatever. The sound of Crowley's heartbeat is shaking the floorboards, rattling the shingles on the roof. If it makes you feel better tomorrow, let's get it out of the way. Okay. Okay, just here? Suits me. Crowley stands up. His mouth has gone dry, so he takes a swig of scotch before walking toward his co-star. There must be some spidery menace in the way he moves, because Avery backs up a bit. It doesn't hurt, not at all. Crowley gets that he can be alarming. I, I have kissed people on screen before, as says quickly as Crowley takes another step closer. So have I. Not for nearly 15 years, though. And it's never been romantic. There are always too many people milling about for there to have been a sense of romance or drama. And Crowley was always kissing women anyway, which, as it turns out, not really his thing. His thing is soft, fussy blondes with lovely manners and lovelier eyes. Whoever would have thought. Never anyone I knew as well as you, of course, as continues. Know me well, do you? Crowley takes another step closer, feeling like he's prowling, like he's a great ungainly jungle cat. As must find him terrifying or completely bloody ridiculous like to think so. Should make it easier to... to... Avery's eyes dart back and forth over Crowley's face. Are you... this was your idea. We don't have to. I... of course, just... I drank that glass rather quickly. Perhaps shouldn't have, but... Uh, a bit of liquid courage. <laughs> Let's just... Crowley doesn't realize how close together they've gotten until his chest nearly bumps Avery's. He puts a hand on Avery's shoulder, steadying them both. Fuck, this is really happening. Could really happen. Crowley isn't ready. Hasn't done the right amounts of meditative breathing. Hasn't had enough time. There isn't time enough in the world to be ready for this. So you'll stalk in from the woods, as murmurs, wetting his lips. Curly can't help but follow the moment, movements of his tongue. But he's allowed to do that. Right now, and only right now, he can look at Avery however he wants. Right now and never again. Because he's supposed to be lascivious and wanton. He's supposed to be leaning towards Avery and staring at his mouth with eyes blown black as Jasper. I'll stalk in from the woods. His hand is still on Avery's shoulder. Fuck, he should move it, but he doesn't think he can. And I'll be afraid, probably, but willing. 
willingly unwilling, like this. And Avery does this look. Damn it, the man can fucking act. Like a maiden waiting to be ravished. He tilts his chin up defensively, exposing his throat at the same time. It's a whole character study in a few tiny movements. The angle of his jaw, the pull of his eyebrows. A thesaurus of words of love pooling in Crowley's mouth. And then you'll touch. Avery's voice breaks as Crowley drags his free hand over Avery's chest, sliding up his throat to his jaw. Crowley knows the lines, knows the actions, could have them tattooed on his wrist at this point, has horrible feverish dreams about them. All alone in the woods, priest? His voice is barely more than a whisper, the sibilant curl of pale fingers beckoning in the dark. Come and see. And then I'll, as gasps, looking startled and repulsed and yet transfixed by Crowley's face. He's acting. He's an actor. Don't for a moment think that he actually wants to look at you like this. And then, then you'll... Crowley leans closer, then closer, and the cigarette ash of his heart glows red under his skin. Avery fell as one raw nerve beneath Crowley's sweating hands, his eyes wide, lips parted. Like this, he breathes against Avery's mouth, the moment before their lips touch. It's a dry leaf of a kiss, barely there. Curly pulls back a fraction, stares at Avery's mouth. Can't look him in the eye, couldn't possibly. No, that's too... That's not how a demonic temptation kisses anyone, no matter how brutally in love they are. More like... He leans in again. This time he opens his mouth a bit, letting the dampness of his lower lip slide against Avery's, and then... Oh, God. Like this... Avery murmurs back, and then Crowley is leaning in again, chasing his tongue into his mouth, and then their mouths are open and scalding against each other's. They're kissing, they're fucking kissing, and Crowley can feel the edge of Avery's teeth against his tongue, has the burning wish that Avery will bite down, draw blood, fill Crowley's mouth with it. He brings both hands up to keep Avery's face exactly where he wants it, tilts him a bit to the left so that they can slot together like they've always meant to. A powerful, terrible, perfect fit, an entire lost continent rising out of the sea. Like, like that, Avery whispers, and then, oh. Crowley is crowding him back against the door, and Avery's hands are grabbing at Crowley's shirt, pulling him closer in fistfuls. Their mouths are hot, viscous and wet with spit and longing and Avery freezes, leans back as far as he can with the door flush against him. He meets Crowley's wide eyes with his own. I wouldn't be so. Painfully slowly, Avery pulls both of his hands away, unclenches his fingers from Crowley's shirt. You'd, you'd have to. Crowley doesn't have the ability to make any sort of protest before Avery is pressing both of his hands flat against the door, looking at Crowley like... Like... Like this? 
Crowley pins Avery's hands in place, watching for Avery's gasping mouthed nod of yes before leaning back in, kissing him again. Fuck, this is better than anything that's happened to Crowley in his life. Avery tastes like scotch and smoke, and he started moaning into the kisses, and now that Crowley's pinning his hands, their bodies are forced into closer contact. Chests pressed together, hips like this. Because Crowley was hard from the first moment their lips touched, and he's basically staggered by it now. And he can feel against him the outline of Avery in his trousers, the branding heat of him, and they're not acting. This isn't acting. Please, Jesus, tell me this isn't acting. He realizes that their fingers are laced against the door. No one's holding anyone down. Their hands are locked together. The knowledge of that is a killing sort of bliss. Makes Crowley bite down at the edge of Avery's jaw, and Avery keens. He likes that. Head knocking against the door, shuddering, and then... He doesn't say stop. He doesn't say no. And he could have. Could have at any point. Crowley would have dropped his hands like they were on fire. Instead, there's an odd hitch in Avery's breathing. And Crowley knows him. Knows him too well not to recognize it for panic. In one fluid motion, he's let go of Avery's wrists, pulled back, and stepped away. There's two feet of distance between them before Avery says, Wait. They both stand there. Crowley is staring at Avery, and Avery is staring at some fixed point on the wall, just off enough to avoid Crowley's gaze. His eyes are shining, and his lips are purple, and Crowley might be sick. I'm going to apologize, he realizes immediately. Doesn't even question it. This was me, right? It had to have been me. Fix it, fix it, fix it while there's time. But Avery speaks before he can. That should do, I think. Every word is like a stone being thrown. We should be fine for tomorrow. Avery. Good thing we got it out of the way. Avery's hand is rattling against the doorknob as he tries to get it open. Curly watches him struggle and awkwardly steps forward to help, just as Az manages it. Well done, Az says. Um, that's... Good night. He leaves immediately, closing the door behind him, not even glancing over his shoulder. Curly stands in one place and stares at the door. His mouth tastes like Avery Fell's mouth. His hands smell like Avery Fell's face. Crowley wanted to touch the man, and he did, and now he's utterly, completely, permanently fucked. He stares at the door, willing as to walk back through it, waiting for the knock to come again, waiting for the gentle question, Can I come in? Can I tell you it's fine or it will be? Can I fix this for you, for both of us? Crowley waits for the rest of the night. They kiss on camera. They kiss over and over again. It's odd and stilted, and Avery keeps apologizing, and Michael makes them retake until mouths lose all meaning. After the shoot, Crowley's lips are swollen, and Avery won't look at him. Nice work, gentlemen, Michael says, unconvincingly. 
and the two of them are loaded into the shuttle. As sits in the back seat, away from Crowley, alone. Enough of a temptation, Crowley asks, because he can't shut his mouth to save his life. Be cool, be flippant, be a flash-fucking bastard until As forgets that you ever sucked his tongue into your mouth. What do you think? Sufficiently wily, As's tone is light, but his attention is elsewhere. He's on his phone, texting, clumsily as always, but Crowley is still entranced by the movement of his thumbs. Yeah, you know me and my wiles. The rest of that episode, for them anyway, is going to be shot in studio, so they can have all those lovely CGI effects added after the fact. Before then, they've got that fabled, long-awaited week off. Avery's going back to London to see Tracy. Crowley's going back to London to see London. Maybe Pepper. Scratch that. Definitely Pepper. They're on the same flight back, but their seats aren't together, so they basically say their goodbyes at the gate. Tracy hugs them both when they arrive in Gatwick, and Avery still won't look at him. Good flight? Crowley asks. Afraid I drowsed off rather quickly. Ah, there's my suitcase. As promptly walks away, wiggling through the crowd like a desperate minnow. You'll have to come to ours for dinner before you're back in Belfast, Tracy tells him as they wait for the rest of the luggage to show up. Yeah, of course. Curly runs his hands through his disastrous airplane hair, sighing deeply. Are you all right, love? Brilliant, Curly says with a smile that feels like a knife. He is just fucking peachy. They wait in a queue for the taxi and Avery won't look at him. Then their driver is loading Az's bags into the boot of the car, and Az is opening the door for Tracy, getting in beside her. And just before he pulls the door closed, he looks at Crowley. It's a look Crowley has seen dozens of times, hundreds of times maybe, around campfires and in forests, and on the sides of rocky cliffs. It's a look like an open grave, a look that's desire tempered with grief, the look of someone who can never, never, never let you see the way they look at you. Wait, Crowley says, the word faltering and dying in the noisy car park. And like that, the moment is over. Avery looks away and the door slams shut and the taxi drives off in a perfume of exhaust. He's an actor, Crowley tells Pepper two days later, still feeling that look screaming in his nervous system. It's what he does. Must have slipped somehow. It happens when you're on a show long enough. You forget when you're a character and when you're yourself. Pepper considers this, a dubious expression on her face. Is that what you truly believe? Yes, of course. And it's not just the comfortable narrative you're used to. Crowley rubs his face with his hands. He hasn't had nearly enough coffee or cigarettes for this conversation. We did the scene, the kissing scene, he offers. Certain something juicy like that will distract her from his devastating self-esteem issues. And how was that experience for you? Was it difficult enacting that intimacy in such a public setting? Not at all. It was... I wouldn't be so... You'd have to. 
Avery pressing his hands against the door, baring his throat to Crowley's teeth. It was nothing. Just acting, right? It's what we do. Dinner doesn't happen. Curly talks to Avery on the phone, but the man has run ragged with visits to his sister. She's got a pack of bloody kids. Curly's seen the pictures, and they always seem sticky with jam for some reason. Inez gets a bit sick with a cold, and eventually Curly just says, All right, well, I'll see you in Belfast. Of course, yes. Have a good flight, dear. Curly wants to ask, but he doesn't really want to know the answer. Is everything you okay? Sorry, as gives an unsteady laugh. Perfectly. Tip-top. Tickety-boo. Mind how you go. He basically hangs up immediately, and Crowley feels like he's been slapped by a wet glove. Well, there's no one around to hear him but his plants, and that's good enough. That was a thing. He hates himself enough to go running, and when he ends up back at home, he has a text from a number he hasn't thought of in ages. Hey, it's Matt. What are you up to? Curly's going to ignore it. He really is. And then he thinks, oh, fuck it. Not much. Just back in London for a few days. How do young people do this? Every word seems, seems vaguely creepy, full of silent expectation. Want some company, Matt asks. Fuck, 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 Crowley hisses at his poor ficus tree. This is not a good idea. Pepper wouldn't think this was a good idea. Or would she? Would she say it was progress? Crowley trying to expand his support network? Isn't she always on about that? Also, he's lonely. Don't ever tell anyone he said that. Maybe you should get a damn cat or something. A nice black and white one. Okay, he texts Matt. The man shows up 40 minutes later with a bottle of gin, and Crowley isn't lonely for the rest of the night. Chapter 5 Hard Times and Interlude 1978, Hartlepool, 9 years old. Avery has almost made it to the docks, where he will stow away on a ship to North America and make his fortune in the West, and never be seen in stupid Hartlepool again, and then they'll all be sorry. When a heavy hand lands on his shoulder, where do you think you're going? Avery knows his dad's voice, but he knows the weight of dad's hand even more. Knows the smell of oil and sweat and lager. He'd know who found him before the man said a word. What the hell are you doing out here alone, eh? Know what time it is? Know how worried your mom is? Let me go. Avery jerks away, but his dad hauls him back. Look at the state of you. What's that? What have you got? One end of the scarf is already in his dad's hands, and Avery struggles to unwind from it so his dad doesn't choke him by accident. Or on purpose. What's this? This your mom's bleeding scarf. Nicked it, did ya? I wanted to look like Cary Grant. Avery snarls as his dad pulls the rest of it off. The pretty yellow silk stained and ruined now, and it's not Avery's fault. It's not. Cary Grant? Who the... 
there's mud all over this. Or is that... Avery turns his head away quickly while his dad steps closer, looming over him like one of those huge trees in California. Avery has seen pictures of them, seen them in books. He's going to go there someday and see them in real life, whatever the boys in school say. What's going on? Are you fighting with that Garrity lad? Is that it? I'll have a word with his father, so help me. No, Avery says, hot with pain and anger. Go on, turn your face. Let me see. Avery lifts one hand to his cheekbone where he can feel the bruise swelling to life. It was the only rock that actually managed to hit him. Evan and his stupid gang have terrible aim. Let me see, I said. Sawing dramatically, and he knows when he's being dramatic. Miss Davies tells him nearly every class. Avery drops his hand, turns his face toward his dad. His dad is silent for a moment. Then he whistles low between his teeth. Is that from one of those bloody Garrities? Avery doesn't answer. If his dad talks to Evans, it will just make everything worse. Could have got your eye, his dad continues, shaking his head. I've mind to go round to theirs. Don't, Avery says. Please don't. Dad folds his arms, looks at Avery like he's an alien or something, someone from outer space that doesn't know anything about the world they live in, has to be told how to eat and breathe and tie his shoes. Avery hates when his dad looks at him like that. They threw rocks at me, he spits, and pushed me in the mud, called me names. He can't repeat them. It might make him sick to say it out loud. He shouldn't have gotten caught out alone after school, but it had been that sort of autumn day that you want to linger in, and Avery had brought that book of T.S. Eliot from the library and couldn't stop reading it, out loud, but in whispers, just to hear the words singing in the air. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands. That book was stomped on and ground into the mud now. He didn't even have the chance to go back for it, Mrs. Poole is going to be so angry, she'll probably ban Avery from the library for a month, and he didn't even do anything. <sighs> it's not fair. I leave them alone. I don't hurt anyone. Why have they got to be so awful to me? Tears are pricking at his eyes, and it's unbearable. His dad hates crying, and Avery tries to blink the tears back, swallow around the lump in his throat. He waits for his dad to yell at him, waits for the cuff to the back of his skull. But instead, his dad just shakes his head, runs a hand through his thinning blonde hair. You know, me and your mom think... His dad coughs a bit, looks slightly queasy. We think the world of you, all right? Avery holds his breath and hopes this moment is over soon. He never knows how to bear kindness when it comes from his quiet, quick-tempered father. You're too bright for the likes of us by far, with your books and that. The things you read, I don't think I've read anything half that smart. He nudges Avery with his elbow gently. Avery flinches away. We know you'll be all right in the end, but just maybe for now. You could try a bit harder to be like the other kids. Avery's mouth opens in protest. 
I don't want to be like them. They're bullies and they're goddamn liars and... Oi! Cuff to the head comes now. Don't ever let your mom hear you swearing. She'll beat that out of you quick enough. Then she'll come after me for being a rotten influence. Avery rubs the back of his head, scowling at the unfairness of the whole ugly world where kids can throw rocks at him, but he isn't even allowed to swear. What do you reckon? His dad's voice softens again. Think of it like you're acting, like you're one of those posh blokes in the films you like so much. Now that's an interesting idea. Avery hasn't thought about it that way before. He likes acting, loves movies, even more than his books. He's seen Death on the Nile three times at the cinema, went around doing odd jobs for the neighbors until he could earn the 45p it cost. Like Peter Ustinov, he asks, thinking it over. His dad pulls a face. Yeah, maybe. Which one's that? He's Perot. Fine, like your Perot. What do you think? Avery thinks that it doesn't seem right. Why should he have to pretend to be someone different while Evan and Jack and Will get to carry on being awful? He tries to put himself in Evan's piggy little mind, imagines seeing the world through eyes squinting narrow with hatred. It feels awful. It feels like everything's gotten smaller around him. But the bruise on his cheek feels awful too, throbbing sharply in time with his heartbeat. Roll of a lifetime, eh? Fitting in with the rest of them? Maybe it'll be a good challenge. A test. Avery wants to be an actor one day. Wants to look like Cary Grant and kiss and kiss, uh, kiss Catherine Hepburn, right. And wear silk scarves and cream-colored coats and arrest anyone who throws his books in the mud. You give it a try and we'll just find a new scarf for your mom, all right? I'll get rid of this old thing. She won't even notice it's gone. Or we'll say the dog got at it. Okay. Avery would try. Try fitting in. Try being just like the rest of the boys in his class. If he wants to be an actor, this is a good way to start. Good lad. Come on, then. Your mom's doing chips for tea. Might not be any left by the time we get there. His dad throws an awkward arm around Avery's shoulder. He pulls him close in a rare display of physical affection. We'll get something on that face of yours. Jesus wept. Social services is going to be after us. They see you in that state. Behind him, the setting sun is just hitting the horizon of the ocean, turning the whole world molten copper. For some reason, Avery likes the color, likes the warm gold of it, the eyes of a snake holding him safe in its gaze. Avery lets himself get tugged along home. 1986, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. 17 years old. What do you fancy? Daniel asks him, looking at the posters lined up outside the theater. Have you seen Highlander yet? said Nancy. That one's going to be dark, mate. You know how it ends. Maybe the ending will be different this time. You don't know. Daniel grins at him, clearly having made his mind up. Come on, Sex Pistols, Gary Oldman... Fine, all right, but I'm starving. I'm getting popcorn or Monster Munch or something. 
You poor thing, I can see right through you. Piss off. Wasting away you are. Daniel smacks Avery's stomach, an absolute prat, and still the only boy in the entire sixth form worth half a damn. Not that Avery will ever let anyone know that. He's on friendly terms with everybody now, though he keeps mostly to himself. He buries his head in books, gets his work done, doesn't get involved in theater or music, doesn't call out in class. He fits in, even sometimes kicks the ball around after school with the Garrity brothers, doesn't mention the time they almost took his eye out with stones. It's exhausting some days, fitting in. Avery comes home from school feeling like he's been running a marathon and hasn't stopped running for almost ten years. But around Daniel, it's not like that. It's different somehow. Daniel loves films, too, almost as much as Avery does, and they save their money when they can, get tickets to whatever's playing in Hartlepool. It's never much. For his birthday last year, Daniel brought him a book of the best film speeches and monologues, and Avery memorized them in secret. Fitting in, right? Recited himself them in front of his mirror with the perfect RP accent. He's got a whole host of accent under his belt, but is still working on his American. It gets a bit nasally. Sounds like he's trying too hard. Being around Daniel is easy most of the time. There are times when it's not easy at all. Times when Avery sees Daniel across the footy pitch and something hot and ugly starts rising up in his throat, like he might bite something or sick up on himself. There's hunger in him, and he doesn't know what it's a hunger for, but sometimes he wants to eat the entire world and swallow it whole. I think Harrison Ford's going to win Best Actor this year, Daniel says as they wait in line for tickets. You think? Betcha anything. They both loved Witness, even though the ending made Avery cry. Maybe that'll be you someday. I'm bloody solo. Avery shakes his head. Don't be an ass. It's true. You should move to Hollywood after school, or to London. Audition for one of those posh theater schools. Right, with all the money I've made sweeping up at Mum's salon. Yeah, that'll happen. I'm sure they've got scholarships in that, for wretched unfortunates like us. Daniel raises his hand to his forehead dramatically. Alms for the poor, governor. Stop it, Avery says, trying not to laugh. People are going to think you're an escaped lunatic. I escaped from Hartlepool, so it's near enough. Daniel's mum is strict as anything, but sometimes she's all right with the two of them catching a train into Newcastle, seeing a matinee, lucking about in town. Avery had tried to do some homework on the ride up, but Daniel kept throwing tiny rolled up bits of paper at him. And then Avery started throwing them back, and by the end, their train car looked like there had been a blizzard in it. They get their tickets, and Avery gets popcorn and a pack of Spangles, and they disappear into the darkness of the cinema. This is the other reason Avery likes the movies, the sense of being hidden away somewhere cool and dark and undiscovered. He's just another face in a sea of faces, lit up briefly by the screen, fitting in so well he's invisible. They sit way off to one side. The theater's pretty empty, but Daniel's a bit of a chatterer, especially when the film is a bad one. And Avery gets so emotionally invested in the stories that his face does stupid things. Best to keep a bit of distance between the two of them and the well-mannered world. Would you like some of this? 
Avery offers the popcorn. And Daniel shrugs him away. Nah, look at your nasty hands. They're all sticky. Avery licks his fingers into his mouth, and Daniel immediately looks away and goes quiet. The lights are starting to dim, so Avery focuses on the screen. At some point during the film, not long into it, their arms end up sharing the armrest between them. Avery's not so much into the sex pistols, and he finds himself distracted by Daniel's hand in the flickering light. He has big hands, not like Avery's. Girls' hands, his dad used to say, and Avery would clench his hands into fists and shove them in his pockets. Daniel's hands are square almost, broad-palmed, blunt-fingertipped. There's a bit of dark hair at the back of each knuckle. When it happens, Avery thinks the brush of contact is accidental. He shifts his hand back slightly so it's not taking up as much space. But then, but then Daniel moves his hand again, so the edge of his palm just rests against Avery's. His skin is so hot it's going to leave a mark, a black ripple of skin that won't heal right, that will stay on Avery's hand until he dies. People will ask him what happened, and he won't know what to say. Someone touched me with skin as hot as a newly filled kettle, a lit burner on the stove, a branding iron. Avery should move his hand then, but he doesn't. If he yanks his hand away in panic, Daniel might feel weird about it. Avery looks away, doesn't want to embarrass him. Daniel probably hasn't even noticed. Then Daniel curls his ring finger. The tip of it brushes over Avery's skin and Avery looks over immediately. He watches their hands there in the blue light of the theater, watches Daniel's ring finger straighten and curl again, feels it like a match being struck on his skin. Daniel is staring straight ahead, face completely blank. But his chest is rising and falling, Avery thinks, like he's breathing hard, as hard as Avery is breathing right now as hard as the heartbeat that's pounding in Avery's narrow chest, like a punch to the breastbone every time. There are going to be bruises on his ribs if his heart keeps beating like this. Then Daniel looks over at him, and Avery feels like he could swallow the world. There's a wolf at the base of his spine, at his throat, great foaming jaws open wide, I'll eat you whole. Avery tears his hand away. What are you... Don't touch me, he spits, and he gets up out of his seat, and he's gone. He's gone. Never sees the ending of Sid and Nancy. Doesn't know whether they both die or ride off in a flying car. Avery's out of the door of the theater, walking and walking and then running, and behind him he can hear Daniel's voice. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please don't tell anyone, Avery. Avery never rides the train to Newcastle again never throws tiny rolled-up scraps of paper across a train compartment on his way to see a movie, and he never tells anyone. 1991, Bristol. There's a rap on the door to the gents where Avery is bawling his eyes out, hands over his face, snot dripping from his nose. He's a pitiful cliché of heartache, something you'd see in a bad film, late-night television, is everything all right in there? A woman's voice calls through the door. Avery takes a shuddering breath, and another. Just a moment. 
He wipes his face, swallows down the rest of his tears, and straightens up in front of the dingy sink. Looks at himself in the mirror. It's worse than he imagined, but just as predictable. Our heartbroken protagonist stares at his reflection and sees a man he doesn't recognize. Who am I, he asks in a dramatic fashion, eyes swollen and red as fists. What have I become? Then he probably breaks the mirror with his hand or something, but Avery isn't so far gone that he's lost his manners. Sorry if you're feeling poorly, love, only I'm supposed to be mopping up in there. The woman's voice continues. It's almost closing time now. Avery splashes water on his face, fully giving in to the drama. His dark brown hair makes his skin look even paler. He dyed it before he started at Old Vic, has been keeping it up these past few years. Thought it would make him stand out a bit, look less like floor-to-ceiling beige wallpaper. It's a shoddy job he's done of it, though, dye-stating the tips of his ears. Avery thinks he looks like a picture a child tried to color. Black ears, red eyes, crayon smudged and going outside the lines. The uh, gentleman you came in with is gone, if that helps. The voice is extremely gentle, almost painfully so. Avery gives in and opens the door. Standing outside it is a woman a bit older than him, or perhaps a bit younger. It's difficult to tell with the amount of makeup she's wearing. She's got white blonde hair and pale blue eyeshadow and a colorful dress that's hanging off of one shoulder. She's leaning on a mop and bucket like she might fall asleep there. Avery thinks she might have been behind the bar pulling pints earlier. He wasn't really paying attention, too busy fighting with his date or whatever Harry was to him. Emphasis on the was. Oh, you're alive. Well done. The woman gives him a once-over and tuts. It's an extremely mothery sound for someone her age. But look at the state of you. Yes, well, Avery breathes, trying to laugh off the despair. He's a fucking actor, a good one, or old Vic wouldn't have taken him. It's fine, I'm fine. I'll be on my way. The woman just raises an eyebrow at him, then turns and shouts over his shoulder. Mags, would you lock up? She turns back to Avery, looks at him like he's a baby duckling. I'll put the kettle on. He ends up spending the rest of the night sitting at the bar drinking tea with a madwoman. Turns out it's a madwoman he's met before. You're one of those theater kids. I knew it. I knew I recognized you. She poses with her arms up over her head, an exaggerated look of delight in her eyes. Remember, like so? Ta-da! Avery shakes his head, only a little frightened. That stag do your friend had. What was his name? I came out of a cake. Vanilla fondant, I think. Lovely. No? Avery shakes his head again, though something's coming back to him. Some horrible, blurry evening when he first started at school and was trying, was really trying. He had had a bit too much to drink and had been dragged out with a couple classmates, and he seems to remember a giant cake more than anything. Well, I remember you. You were the one in the corner having a breakdown. Never seen anyone look so uncomfortable. She laughs, pats him on the shoulder like they're best friends. Felt sorry for you, poor thing. 
Yes, uh, quite. Each word he says feels like blown glass. So you work here and there, and I draw aside the veil every Thursday afternoon. Avery does not know what that means. And offer the occasional bit of intimate personal relaxation and stress relief for the discerning gentleman. The woman winks. Avery does not know what that means either. All sorts, whatever I have to. I'm getting out of Bristol, aren't I? Moving to London one day. Going to make something of myself. Oh, me too. London is something Avery can talk about. London haunts his dreams at night. I mean, I want to go to London when school's done. I'm sure you could manage it. Must well be posh going to a fancy school like that. Not really. That's the other thing he doesn't talk about. The thing he hasn't told any of his classmates. But this strange woman is so warm and shameless it almost makes him feel less ashamed as well. I'm on scholarship. Otherwise there would be no possible way. It's a stroke of luck I'm going to school at all, let alone. So you're a smart one. She clicks her teacup against his. Folks must be proud. Avery thinks of his dad, still quiet and quick-tempered and working in the mill. Thinks of his mum, fingers curled like strips of birch bark, early onset arthritis, and thinner and thinner and thinner every time he sees her. It's nothing, really. Not that exciting. Come off it. Of course it's something. Look at you. She traces her manicured nails over the rim of her teacup, stares into the steam like she's reading tea leaves. You know, I think I've seen you since that party as well. Been round here a time or two, haven't you? And always with some new fella? Avery can feel the color, what little he has, drain out of his face. The woman immediately reaches out, puts a hand on his. Hey, hey, don't look like that. I ain't bothered. It's all right. I only brought it up because I should probably just... Because I hate to see anyone wasting time on people that treat them badly. She squeezes his hand, and Avery resists the urge to pull away from her. Flail like a panicked, slightly drunk bird. Why do you let them? Let them... I don't... You really... Since moving to Bristol, Avery has had a series of not relationships. Flings, hookups, with the cruelest, most closeted, self-hating men he can find. No one has ever asked him about it before, because no one knows. He doesn't take them back to his flat. He doesn't even meet them in this part of town. He frequents dodgy, out-of-the-way pubs like this one, where no one recognizes either of them. And he lets the men do what they like with him in bathrooms and alleyways. Lets them kiss their contempt against his throat. They're generally pretty awful to him afterwards, so they fight and part ways. And Avery hates himself for a few weeks. And then he does the whole thing over again. Consistency. That's important. Why does it matter, he manages at last, once panic has stopped stealing his words from him. He knows what he is, what he wants, and he knows it can't happen. Shouldn't it? It's not like... It's nothing that's going to go anywhere, nothing that means anything. Who cares how they treat me? I do. You don't even know my name. What's your name, then, so I can care? 
The woman reaches up, takes off her long blonde wig, followed by a wig cap. She ruffles out a head full of matted red curls. There, that's better. I'm Tracy, and you are? When Avery doesn't say anything, she holds out her hand to be shaken. Go on, then. Took off my wig, didn't I? Avery's so shocked that he laughs, tears in his eyes and thorns in his throat. He takes her hand, shakes it. Avery. Avery fell. Ooh, just like Bond, James Bond. Tracy flutters her eyelashes at him. Fancy. The sun is coming up by this point, peeking between the shutters that Mags pulled down at Tracy's barked request. Avery is more exhausted than he has possibly been in his life, but he's also had about eight cups of tea in the past five hours and won't be falling asleep anytime soon. You want some breakfast, Tracy asks. The cafe down the road does a good fry-up. Cheap as chips. What day is it? He can't quite recall. The room is getting fuzzy around its edges, like an old photograph. I may have class in a few hours. Well, gotta have that brain food, I'm sure. She pats his shoulder again, and this time Avery doesn't fight the urge to flinch and run from it. Casual, friendly touch is not something he's had that much experience with. Perhaps he needs practice. Come on, then, Tracy says. I'll treat you, shall I? Seeing as you're a starving artist. And Avery doesn't have him in him to say no to breakfast twice, so he says yes. 1998, London, 29 years old. The headlines are awful and everywhere. Anthony Crowley's homosexual scandal. Drugs, violence, men. Anthony Crowley's downhill spiral. Out of control, Anthony Crowley's parents grieve troubled son. The falling star keeps falling. Anthony Crowley arrested outside notorious gay bar in Soho. Avery doesn't know the man, but of course he knows of him. They've never met, though if he were being completely honest, Avery would have moved heaven and earth to have gotten the chance. He may have watched most of Anthony's films at some point in his 20s, even the early ones, the awful romantic comedies. Avery might still have a soft spot for the man's oddly jagged profile, the slant of his mouth, the soft lick of carnelian hair that falls into his eyes. Bit of a celebrity crush. Fine, everyone has them, and really it was Anthony's talent that was the most compelling thing. Avery could certainly claim that the admiration was purely professional. Whatever darkness the man has buried just below the surface of his skin gets dredged up when he acts, and it's transformative. Most of his roles, even the awful romantic comedies, shine with just a hint of that pain, and Avery respects that, and Avery's fascinated by it, and Avery finds him awfully, shockingly watchable. And now this. What a waste. Anthony Crowley checks into Celebrity Rehab Facility. A secret life, the illicit affairs Anthony Crowley kept from his family and fans. The illicit bloody affairs, God in heaven. Like the man's required to report who he's sleeping with and when, keep a regular chartered schedule so everyone can weigh in and stamp their approval. 
It's awful. A bit like watching a car crash. Avery's been thinking about it ever since the story broke. No matter how much things seem to change, well, this is a reminder that he's doing the right thing, living his life the right way. He only hopes that Crowley gets the help he needs, puts this whole mess behind him someday. What are you doing? I can hear you sighing away in there. Tracy comes into the kitchen, throwing her handbag over her shoulder and fussing with her hair. Ugh, the sun? Nothing good comes of reading that. Don't believe a word of it. Yes, well. Avery sighs again. Can't help the exhaustion the wells that wells out of him like blood. He knows. He's always known the media felt like this about people who, who want. Anyway, it's one thing to know it theoretically, and it's another to have it right there in front of you, punching your teeth out. Where are you off to? Seeing that, what was his name again? What's his name should be so lucky? No, just meeting up with some of the girls. I've sworn off men. This time I mean it. Just like last time. I'm serious. I need to focus properly on Tracy. Do some, you know, self-reflection. Might even consult the cards. Let me know what they say. Tracy puts an arm around his shoulder, kisses the side of his head. They've been roommates for five years, ever since they moved to London. Tracy's working at a handful of pubs, doing the odd psychic reading here and there. Avery's been getting work as well. Not a lot, but enough to pay the rent and then some. He's done a couple plays, a few independent co-pros, and he's getting his name out there. More and more people are noticing him, which is its own sort of terrifying. Before you go, I meant to ask... The illicit affairs Anthony Crowley kept from his family and fans. Would you like to come to the screening next week? I've got two tickets to the premiere. Well, of course I would. Most exciting thing that's happened since my divorce. Better dust off one of the dresses from my Madame Tracy days, eh? <laughs> yes, well, whatever you like. Avery's heart is racing. This might be a massive mistake. Or it might be a stroke of genius. He can never really suss out the difference. The thing is, I was hoping you would come as as my date. My date for the evening. Tracy looks at him blankly. Well, of course, isn't that what you just asked? Drugs, violence, men. Are you... Are you reading the papers, following the entertainment news? Will you mean all that drama around Anthony Crowley? Poor bloke. Looks like he's absolutely falling to pieces, what with everything. She frowns. Then she sits down at the kitchen table right across from him. She might give off a rather flighty impression, but Tracy isn't a fool. Not at all. What are you asking me as? His heart beats and beats, refuses to give out. Sometimes Avery wonders if it would be easier for all parties involved. That perhaps, if you were asked, you might say that we've um, come together. Tracy says nothing. 
She purses her bright red lips and does not move her gaze from his face. There seems to be some uh, buzz around the film, Avery continues quickly. Not that I have any expectations, but reading the way the press is treating Anthony, he can still feel a bruised dark swelling on his cheekbone, the ghost of a pain where a stone hit him so many years ago. If you come with me, if you told them we already lived together, perhaps we could... For how long? What? What do you mean? You want me to lie to your co-workers? Friends? How long? How long are you going to pretend? Avery laughs, or at least he thinks it's a laugh. Some sound claws its way out of his throat, and he's almost smiling, so it must be a laugh. It can't be anything else. Well, forever, of course. I'll never... Tracy looks like she might start crying, and Avery quickly takes her hand, rubbing it gently. Oh, my dear, it's not so bad as all that. Don't listen to me. I'm sure that someday I might find... Well, or things might change. Who knows? And I love this more, don't you see? Acting is what I love. I'm far better at it than being in relationships. But it's so sad. I'm not sad, Avery insists. And he isn't. He is making the right choice. Every day he makes the same choice. And every day it is the right one. And it's no one's business. This way... If, if you say that we're together, no one will even think to ask the question. Of course, if you meet someone, we'll break it off right away. I never stand between you and meet someone. Aren't you feeling charitable? Told you I was swearing off men, didn't I? Well, I wouldn't presume it was a lifelong vow. Good Lord, no. Tracy still has an odd look on her face, but the knot of her mouth has softened slightly. I'll think on it, all right? Thank you so much. You would be helping me immensely. Helping the two of us, really. But you have to promise me, under no circumstances are you allowed to fall arse over tits in love with me. Avery's eyes go wide, and Tracy cracks a smile. I've seen the films as. I know how it ends. Only you have to resist my charms. Promise me. I'm not marrying another gay man. I don't care how adorable you are. You're a wonder. I haven't said yes yet. I'm going to consult the cards. Apparently the cards are in Az's favor later that evening, and two weeks later he walks into his first premiere screening with his best friend on his arm. 2018, Victoria. They've almost made it to the docks when Curly points out the second-hand bookshop. Usually Avery has a sixth sense about those places, but he's distracted by the ocean. It happens to him any time he's around open water, takes him back to his childhood with a panicky sort of nostalgia. Curly, however, is perpetually on guard for something. He prowls rather than walks, gaze constantly darting. Avery found it alarming at first, but now he just finds it charming. They're in Canada for a convention right after the release of Warlock Season 1. The panel was yesterday, and Avery shook hands and took photos of people dressed as his character, 
or some approximation. It was all quite wonderful, flattering and surprising and wonderful. Avery hasn't done a lot of genre film or television before, doesn't have the experience with fans like this. What an incredible thing. They've one day off before they're flying together to Austin for another convention, and they've decided to have lunch by the water. Or Avery decided that. Curly's just humoring him, following along with his hands wedged into his pockets and his molten red hair pulled halfway up and out of his face. He's all dark colors and contrasts, and Avery feels sometimes shabby in comparison. His bland skin and hair and wardrobe look like dishwater next to Crowley's black and red sharp-edged elegance. You want to go in? Crowley asks, gesturing at the two-story shop on the corner. Of course Avery wants to go into a bookshop. Avery always wants that. All right, why not? He browses the shelves a bit while Crowley fidgets, looks at notebooks, pretends to be interested in the new arrivals section. Now and then he glances up at Avery with a fond amusement that Avery can feel even with his, when his gaze is turned, focused on the rows of embossed spines in front of him. Curly humors him. Avery knows it, but it's kind nonetheless. Sometimes he wants to stop the man doing something, stop him with a touch in the middle of a scene or over dinner or while they're walking side by side and say, I knew you were talented. I always knew you were cool. I didn't know you'd be kind. Of course he won't. Curly would think he was ridiculous. But the words are still there, burning the roof of Avery's mouth sometimes. He drinks cold water, tries to ignore them. There's nothing much for antique books, but he stumbled into the poetry section where he sees a familiar yellow spine. T.S. Eliot's collected poems. It makes a little shock run through him, and his face must do something because Crowley is at his side in a moment. What is it? Oh, it's a book I once had. Borrowed from a library, actually. Of course you're the type to remember every book you've ever borrowed. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't. There have been far too many. Crowley snorts. Only this one was memorable. He continues. The last time you saw it, it was covered in mud, pages crumpled and torn. I was young, and I liked it rather a lot. Do you want it? I... He does, but he also doesn't want the memory of that book, that day sitting on his shelf and gathering dust, like it was something ordinary, something acceptable. Oh well, ancient history now, right? Doesn't matter. What's one more for the stacks, eh? Curly takes it gently from Avery's hand. That's another thing Avery didn't expect about him, the gentleness. Allow me. No, my dear, you shouldn't. But Crowley is already walking over to the till, putting the book down next to a couple of bars of fancy dark chocolate. He also laid away when Avery wasn't looking. Thank you, Avery says, after the whole transaction is finished. Curly hands him back the book. No trouble, Angel. You can buy lunch. He grins behind his sunglasses, and Avery feels a bit lightheaded. He should have brought sunglasses himself, maybe. It's sunnier than he thought it would be. They pick up a couple of grilled flatbreads and a carton of strawberries. 
Curly refuses to let Avery pay for any of it, despite his previous assurances, and sit down by the water's edge. Avery eats his sandwich, and then half of Curly's, and they watch the boats in the harbor weaving around each other like porpoises, like tangled nets, like hands. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, Avery reads aloud, quietly, just to hear the words in the air. It's okay, Crowley asked him to. He doesn't have to be embarrassed. What water lapping the bow? Curly has his head resting on the back of the bench they're sharing, the jagged melody of his throat and Adam's apple bared to the sky. His fingers are stained a bit pink from the strawberries. Avery feels something light up in his chest. If it was nighttime, you'd see the spaces between his ribs shining like bolts of lightning. And the scent of, of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, Avery says. At the stumble, Crowley looks over at him. The corner of his mouth curls, not quite a smile. You grew up on water, didn't you? He asks. Much of a sailor? Oh, heavens no. Avery shakes his head, strangely pleased and flustered by the question. If Crowley would ever look at someone like him and imagine he could navigate by starlight and hoist the mainsail, find true north even in the dark, most sailing I ever did was in one of those. Avery gestures towards the paddle boats and canoes on the calm expanse of green in front of them. There's a rental place just down the beach. They passed it on their walk, and families and couples are all packed into boats together. It's been a while since Avery's been on the water, even if he's no sailor. Would you like to take one out? He asks Crowley, raising an eyebrow. That question was not supposed to be an invitation to activity. Curly says the word like it's petrol, shudders a bit. But now the idea has taken root and Avery can't dig it out. We should. It's a lovely day for it. It'd be good to get out on the open sea. Good Lord. The wind in our hair and at our backs. The smell of brine. Avery's nautical vocabulary is drying up, but at least he's making Curly laugh. Making Crowley laugh is a bit like receiving a weak electric shock. It doesn't happen that often. More than not, Avery gets a smirk of reluctant amusement. But when it does happen, the hairs on his arms stand on end. He feels like he could spit sparks. Come on, humor me, my dear. They rent a boat, a canoe, life jackets, safety first, and they paddle around the harbor eating dark chocolate, Avery, and complaining, Crowley, until the afternoon sun starts to fade and there are fewer and fewer boats on the water. The light is turning the anxious pink of dusk, and Avery is distracted by a tangle of red hair that keeps getting caught in Crowley's mouth, and they're just starting to head back to shore when... when... a harbor police boat speeds by. Apparently, it's a thing they have, even in Canada. Anyway, the wake it kicks up is immense, and Avery sees it coming before Crowley does. Only has enough time to grip the sides of the canoe before it's rocked violently, and they lean to the same side to try to balance it out, and oh hell, they're tipping over. The water is a violent kind of cold, 
but Avery grew up on the edge of the North Sea. He adjusts to the cold and to violence rather quickly. Fuck! Curly emerges a moment after Avery, hissing like a wet cat. Are you all right? Avery asks at the exact same time that Curly does, and then they both nod wetly at each other. The water's only shoulder deep. They're not in any danger, and they're close enough to shore that pulling the boat is the same amount of effort as trying to climb back into it. It's only a few minutes' work, but as they haul the boat onto the sand, Curly suddenly turns around. Oh, shit. He's running back into the water, tearing off his life jacket, splashing around like a madman. Stop. What are you... Avery calls, panicked, contemplates going after him. When Curly plunges below the surface suddenly, Avery does. He takes a few running steps back into the water, convinced that the other man has actually lost his mind. Curly resurfaces, then dives again. Avery shouts at him, Anthony, a name that feels molten in his mouth. Curly surfaces, then dives. And as when his hand finally shoots up out of the water, he's holding something bright yellow. Avery stops running towards him, stands knee-deep in the freezing ocean. The book, Curly says, sloshing back to the shoreline. His hair is a knotted mess of red kelp. He's soaked to the skin, hasn't lost his sunglasses somehow, and he's carrying a book of T.S. Eliot poetry. Avery can't speak. The book, Curly shouts again, coming closer. After you made such a fuss over it, you... Something is happening. Inside Avery's bones, in the marrow of them. You didn't have to... Can't imagine the fuss you'd make if it was lost. Curly reaches him, hands it over. Their fingers just touch, slightly. Barely noticeable, really. And they've touched before so many times, have had their arms around each other's shoulders in press photos, have shoved each other away during scenes, have helped adjust each other's microphones or cloaks or hair. They've touched before, but it hasn't felt like this. Dry it out standing should be okay. Yes, I know how to dry out a book. Curly smirks, of course you do. And Avery suddenly feels starving, like he could eat the whole world. Resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken. Come on then, I don't care what you say, I'm calling us a cab. I'm not walking back in this state. Oh, bugger me, my mobile. The awakened, lips parted, the hope, the new ships. By the time they get themselves sorted, get a cab, get back to the hotel, the setting sun is just on hitting the horizon of the ocean. And wood thrush calling through the fog. There is a wet book of poetry in Avery's hands, rescued from the muddy ocean floor. The sky behind him is wholly golden. 2020, London. It's been a long time. I promise we're nearly there. He opens his eyes to the ring of his mobile. Oh, Christ, oh, fuck, oh, God in heaven, it's Gabriel. 
Avery isn't ready to speak to him just now, isn't ready to speak to anyone. But he's unfailingly polite, or at least he tries to be, and he never really feels like he has a choice where his manager is concerned. Were you still asleep? Gabriel sounds incredulous right from the go. I thought you were on this new fitness kick. When does that start? He laughs loudly. Avery's mouth twitches. Yes, I didn't sleep well last night. He'd been thinking about his last conversation with Crowley, his utter desperation to get off the phone before he said something he couldn't take back. Tickety-boo, mind how you go. Sometimes these words just rattle loose from his skull and there's no stopping himself. All Crowley wanted was to see you for dinner and you wanted that too. You wanted that too, you absolute coward. Well, I need to give you a heads up about some photos. Oh God, oh God. Avery's lungs collapsed like rotten fruit. Did someone see that night in the hotel room? Was there a photographer lurking outside the window, peering between curtains? How had Avery not thought to check? Could he say it had been a rehearsal? Because it was, it was rehearsing. That was all it was. Christ, the photos will be everywhere by now. His dad will have seen them. How long does he have before, before Gabriel, I'm, what photos are you talking about? Avery tries to keep the terror out of his voice. Maybe there's a chance that he can save this, fix it, explain it away. Calm down, Gabriel says, tone light and amused. Honestly, it's not that. What photos, Gabriel? Gabriel sighs. Your pal, Anthony, he and his boy toy got back together. I don't know the details. It takes Avery a moment for his mind to wrap around this to understand the words and the order they've been strung together. His first thought is, oh, thank God. It wasn't the kiss. No one knows. No one knows. His second, second thought is, Curly hasn't got a boy toy. What the hell is Gabriel on about? Maybe it's serious this time. Mazel tov. Who cares? thought you should know in case you get a call from anyone. The tabloids go crazy over his love life. Don't know why. The photos, Avery repeats like an idiot. Keep up, sunshine. Gabriel chuckles dryly. Yeah, they're all over the internet. Nothing graphic, just that same guy from the other photos. Anyway, not much more to it than that. I've got another call in four minutes, so I'll check in with you before you fly out, okay? Okay. All right. And you know what helps with sleep? Ex Avery ends the call before Gabriel can finish, not really hearing or caring about the rest of it. Like some sort of pathetic teenager, he Googles Anthony Crowley on his phone and waits for the inevitable. It is the same man from before, the one outside the club with the lovely hair. They're kissing in Crowley's apartment window. They're kissing outside his flat as well. He's strong looking, angular, broad shouldered, not soft at all. Well done, Crowley, Avery thinks to himself. A real catch. Good for him.
Avery would hate to think that his co-star was lonely. He deserves to be happy, to find love. He deserves someone who will kiss him in doorways and windows and not care who sees it. Someone like that. Not someone like me. This is good. Great news. Maybe it's serious. Wouldn't that be lovely? On his bedside table, Avery has a warped book of poetry that he reads sometimes when he can't sleep. It's water damaged, but it dried up well enough. There were some bad memories circling it like sharks for a time, but then Crowley went and changed them to good ones. Took the stones and made them shine golden. Avery looks over at the book and cannot bring himself to touch it. This is good. For a little while longer, he studies the photograph of Crowley's face, pressed against the neck of this handsome other man. Avery could never look like that, no matter how much work costume and makeup put into him. He's still beige and shapeless. He's not a walking bite mark like his co-star. His jawline will never murder anyone, and neither will his mouth. Perhaps this will make it easier. If he knows that Crowley is otherwise engaged, there's less to lose by loving him, less to regret by not ever speaking of it. Avery can put these feelings away like he's always done. He can go back to the way he used to be. He can fit in. It's like acting, right? He's exceedingly good at it by this point. He has to be. And that about brings us to today. There's a rap party at the end of season one. It's at a pretty swank club in London, and Crowley goes because he has to, and ignores the canapes and mostly holds up the bar, sipping at a tumbler of whiskey. He's only one of the night, so he's making it count, and being antisocial. He can't help it, or he could, but he's not going to. He still has trust, trust issues around film people. And for all the smiles and laughs and handshakes from the cast and crew, he knows that it could all dissolve in a moment. Knows that he's still a trail of gunpowder as far as everyone's concerned, and they're just waiting for him to find a match. It's hard to relax with that knowledge biting your fingertips. It's hard to relax in general, really. Enjoying yourself? Anathema leans beside him. She looks gorgeous, as always, in a drapey black number, and she's clearly a bit pissed from champagne. Otherwise, she'd never waste her time asking that question. I'm all right. This music, though. He pulls a face that makes Anathema laugh. The DJ is apparently a fan of classic soft rock. Crowley's dad might appreciate it, but it's making Crowley cringe with secondhand embarrassment. Not a fan of whoever this is? Jesus, it's the Eagles, you child. So you are a fan. Just because I have ears and a basic knowledge of music history does not mean... Do you want to dance? To the Eagles? No, absolutely not. Come on. Or wait, can you dance? Crowley can dance. Despite the wobbly snake and leather thing he's got going on lately... He was a teenager in the late bloody 80s. He knows how to dance. Most of the time he was just throwing himself around the dance floor like a complete arse, but he's got, not to brag or anything, moves. 
thing is he requires a lot more chemical motivation to get to a place where he's halfway comfortable turning his brain off for a bit, letting his body take over. This single glass of whiskey over the course of two hours is not going to do the trick. I can dance, he says, and Anathema rolls her eyes. Prove it. When Crowley says nothing, she pouts at him. Come on, I don't want to dance by myself, and the grips are fucking handsy bastards. Just one. The music is admittedly shit, but expect you'd prefer Ed Sheeran or something? You're an ass. She folds her arms, scans the room. I'll go ask your boyfriend then, see if he isn't more of a gentleman. Avery is certainly more of a gentleman. He's off talking to Michael and a couple other crew members, animatedly gesturing at something that makes Michael laugh. Good Christ, is the man doing magic? If not, it's just a matter of time. Anathema looks from Crowley's face to Avery and then back again. She smiles and she's terrifying. He looks nice tonight, doesn't he? You think. Crowley purposely keeps his tone flat. Avery always looks nice, albeit in a ridiculous way, like someone's grandpa was turned into a wizard and sent back in time, like someone read a bunch of E.M. Forrester novels and then made a lot of rash purchases at secondhand stores. Tonight he's wearing a bloody waistcoat. He's committed to an aesthetic, I'll give him that. The eagles fade out, and the opening chords of Queen's good old-fashioned lover boy start up. Anathema's eyes widen. Still a no, even to Queen? Absolutely not. You're no fun. All right, enjoy your sulk. I'll leave you alone with it. She crosses the dance floor, strides with confidence that Crowley will never have sober to the other side where Avery is standing. Crowley watches the exchange dubiously. Avery is no kind of dancer. The man himself has admitted it several times. He learned the gavotte for a show once, was convinced to do a few steps one night when they had both had a couple glasses of wine. It was a stumbling mess, and Crowley laughed until he choked on his wine, and then Avery tossed a book at him. Just a paperback, though, so you know his heart wasn't in it. He studies Avery now from across the room, his eyes widening, shake of the head, polite demurral. The flutter of his hands, a laugh catching at the corner of his mouth that Crowley would reach out and taste like it was honey. And then to the great amusement of the bystanders, Anathema takes Avery's hand and leads him onto the dance floor. And it's ridiculous, as is as fussy as he ever is, spinning Anathema around like they're an old couple learning to foxtrot. He's got no sense of rhythm and no sense of timing, and a few seconds in, Anathema is laughing so hard She's almost doubling over. Avery is laughing, too. It's funny how buttoned up he can be at times, but how a switch seems to flip when he's doing something he loves. Acting or terrible magic tricks. And now, apparently, dancing. Or attempting to dance. To queen of all possible options. I will pay the bill. You'll taste the wine. Crowley's charmed by Avery's smile, by his shuffling feet, by his overwrought mouthing along to the lyrics. Just take me back to yours, that will be fine. 
When the dance is over, Anathema hugs Az, whispers something in his ear. The two of them part ways, and Avery shuffles off into the crowd somewhere, and Crowley bites down on his tongue, sips his whiskey, and tells him it burns nicely, that it doesn't taste acrid at the back of his throat, that he's cool, aloof, doing just fine in the dark, holding up the bar and watching Avery Feld dance with someone else. Crowley's heart is a damned cockroach. No matter how many times he tries to crush it under his boot, the bloody thing survives. Not a dancer. Speak of the devil or something. As sidles up behind him, eyebrows arched and looking rather pleased with himself. We have that in common, it seems. Oh, I like that very much. You dance like you're a French fucking courtier. Well, you walk like a newborn foal. It's called swagger, Angel. Is that what it's called? I did wonder if there was an official diagnosis. Crowley laughs despite himself. Then he gives in because he has terrible self-control and could fill the English channel with his longing. Do you want to get out of here? Come around to mine? Oh, heaven on earth, yes. As answers so quickly that Crowley doesn't even have time to start worrying about coming on too strong, sounding pathetic, being too much. As says yes like Crowley's handing him a gift tied up in brown paper and ribbon. I was hoping you'd ask me ages ago the music this evening. I shall never understand bebop. Please stop talking. I, there's so much wrong with what you just said. You can tell me all about it on the drive. So As gets his jacket and they go back to Crowley's and Crowley does his damnedest to get a bit more gavoting, gavoting out of the precious angel. It doesn't happen, but the attempt makes Avery smile, open book, ruffled pages, and that's worth it. Anathema says you turned her down, As says at one point. Hmm? Curly was distracted by a curl of hair right against Avery's temple that the man keeps fussing with. Tonight, said you wouldn't dance with her. Yeah, well, not in the mood for it. Are you ever? I can't imagine. As sips his wine. What would you require for sufficient motivation? Are you asking? Curly wants to say, but doesn't. Won't. Better music than that, he mumbles instead. Yes, I gathered. Anything else? The Velvet Underground and Nico is spinning on Crowley's record player. As has referred to this album as bebopped in, in the past, bless him, so Crowley doubts his opinion has shifted. Dunno, he says instead. I'll let you know when I find it. Avery smiles, and Crowley's cockroach heart survives and survives again. Been around since the dinosaurs, right? There's no getting rid of it now. It would take an asteroid to wipe out this love. It will take the end of the fucking world. Now, where were we? Crowley flies to Belfast alone. He bounces his knee on the plane until the woman sitting beside him gives him a concerned look. And then he starts drumming his fingers. Hey, congratulations on not growing up with anxiety. That must have been a carefree fucking childhood. Well done, you.
There's a car waiting to take him to his flat. Bees has come through for once and rented him a house for the week. Beats staying at a hotel. Now he can cook for himself and for Avery if Avery's speaking to him again and actually settle in for a bit. The place is nice, if small. Two floors, big bathtub, a piano, and a couple succulents that are clearly being overwatered. Curly will set them straight. That night, he wanders the neighborhood, picks up a couple of good bottles of wine and a nice single malt from the friend at hand, a local distillery he always stops by when he's in Belfast. He visits a few food shops to get in a bit of this and that, and ends up going overboard with things he knows as likes, just in case. Just in case the man comes round, Curly can make out like the fridge was already stocked, can pretend that he didn't stand in a bakery second-guessing whether Az would prefer the passion fruit tart or the hazelnut chocolate trianon, that he didn't just take too long deciding between Emmentaler Swiss or Welsh Shutter or the French Mimolette and then eventually just buying all three, that he didn't go a bit overboard with the pears. Curly wonders if Az is even in town. Is he somewhere across the old stone city looking out a window, fussing with his cardigan, paging gently through a book? Curly's own call time is early the next morning, but Avery isn't on the sheets until the day after. He wonders where Avery is staying, if he'll be close by. Text him, text him, text him, hisses a voice somewhere in his ugly lizard brain. That same voice used to make demands that were a lot more dangerous, had appetites that tasted like blood and cut Crowley's tongue. He's been working on ignoring it. He doesn't text Avery. He texts Matt instead. Matt responds immediately with some pretty uh, racy photographs that Crowley will not be reciprocating, but appreciates nonetheless. Then he bashes around on the piano for a good hour can't play worth a damn, but bashing around is fun. And unpacks a bit and drinks too much chamomile. Jesus, fuck, he's a renegade. Lock up your husbands. The studio shoot is mostly in a village set. They've built it on the lot, and they use it as a stand-in for almost every village that the characters pass through. You'd be surprised how many ways you can arrange a few shacks to make it look like an entirely different place. Movie magic, right? Once you've seen the strings, it takes some of the magic away. There are a bunch of extras in this episode, mostly milling around the craft table, trying to make off with free paninis. Crowley's running through blocking before he has to go sit down with makeup when, across the set, Avery Fell comes into view. He's pale-haired and pale-skinned, bundled up in a woolen coat and a tartan scarf and Crowley forgets everything he's supposed to say and do and think. Missed that one, Anthony. Can you go back? Make sure you hit the mark? Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. When he next has a moment to himself, Michael is talking to this new kid named Newt. First real role and he's rattling, poor bugger. Curly looks for Az again. Az is still waiting there, standing by the faded facade of the village inn, watching Crowley. The sight of him is staggering, same as it ever is, but something feels different this morning. They've been apart for longer stretches of time than this. They've gone more days without talking or texting. But when Crowley lifts his hand at Az, and Az lifts his in return, it's like there's a chasm between them. 
How did it get there? Crowley knows. He knows how it got there. He put it there when he put his hands on Avery's throat and pressed their mouths together like two halves of a prayer book. I'm going to apologize, Crowley thinks for the hundredth time. I'll fix this. I will. His life may be one disaster after another, but if there's anything in the muddy schoolyard of his existence worth fighting for, it's as. As soon as he's set loose, he finds Avery waiting for him at the craft service tables. Sipping a cup of tea, it will be milky and oversweet, just the way he likes it. Crowley knows how the man takes his tea. Crowley knows how his lips would taste if he were to lean down, take the mug from his hands, and lick into Avery's warm mouth. Fuck, this is not helpful. Hiya, Angel. Avery's lip does a little wobble that could hold a pillow over Crowley's face, and he'd thank it. Hello, dear. Crowley slumps into the seat across from him, places his hands as close to Avery's on the flat surface of the table as he dares. What are you doing here? You aren't on until tomorrow, yeah? Thought I'd drop by. Brought along coffee for the crew, that awful black American stuff you love so much. Well, if you didn't just become my favorite person ever, Crowley keeps the rusted edge in his voice. Like, haha, what a joke. All it took was coffee, right? That's the key to my affections. Nothing to do with you at all. It's not like I've had my wasted heart held out in my fist for nearly three years begging you to bite it. Can you imagine? Hilarious. I knew it was an early call time for you, and I thought, the coffee truck's just outside the lot. I'll make you anything you like. You going to stick around today, or just dropping by with caffeine? Stay, Crowley wants to say. Stay where I can see you. I'm a better actor when you're around. I'm a better man. You want to sit in my trailer, drinking your sugary tea? There are books in there. You left them last time. And I'll order food for you, and you can snipe at me while I take off my makeup, while I get mic'd up, while I only panic a little before filming. I, uh, Avery darts his gaze around. I might wander the city a bit. What time are you wrapped this evening? It's supposed to be six, but Christ knows it always goes late. We're already pushing lunch. Crowley swallows. Keep talking. Keep him here a little while longer. Where are you staying? Bee's got me a flat of my own. Has a piano, even. You ever play? I can't remember. No, why? Rather appalling lack of talent in that field. You'll have to come by sometime and try it out. Did I not just tell you I'm dreadful at it? You did. Made me want to hear you more, to be honest. Far more entertaining. Keep talking. Ash shakes his head, irritated in a delicious sort of way. Curly wants to bite his earlobe. You know, I seem to recall a pub near my hotel that looked rather promising. Have dinner with me. Crowley says in a rush. Avery's eyes snap to his like a pale blue punch to the jaw. He's going to say no. He, you've ruined this and he's going to... All right. Wait. What? Okay. Crowley makes words happen through sheer force of habit. I'm... I'll just text you when I'm off then. Shall I? All right. 
I can meet you near your hotel or at the pub, anywhere you like. Yes, Avery swallows. All right. So they have dinner. And it's a bit, I don't know, stilted at first. But by the end of the night, they're almost back to the way things were. Almost. And thank fucking God for that. As is an absolute prat. And Crowley stares at him across the table, hoping that the hearts in his eyes are somewhat obscured by his dark sunglasses. There are no after-dinner drinks in Az's hotel room, but that's probably the best for Crowley's remaining brain cells. Instead, they say goodnight. Crowley ho goes home alone. It's fine. For a couple of days, it goes along like this. They go out for dinner, and they meet up for breakfast, and they drink tea in Crowley's trailer. They don't talk about the kiss. They don't talk about Az avoiding Crowley for a week or about the new pictures of Crowley in the paper. Heaven and hell both. Crowley's sick of it, even though Matt's been quite a good sport. After feeling like he'd fucked it all up permanently, Crowley knows this is more than he deserves. If Avery can put the awkwardness behind him, then, then Crowley can try to put the rest of it away as well. But then two things happen. Hard to say which is worse. Or maybe not. Scratch that last bit. They're four days into filming when the guest director, fucking David Nutter, changes up the script. It needs more, he tells them. I think you should hug him. In this scene, Crowley has just returned from a bit of a side quest, scouting out news in another village where a morally dubious former associate still lives, only to find the parish where Avery and Adam were staying has been razed to the ground. They haven't shot the latter scene yet, Crowley falling to his knees, choking back his grief in the charred wood and rubble. They're saving that for the last day because they're actually going to burn the church down, the most expensive stunt of the episode. Today, though, they're filming the reunion. Crowley is messing with alcohol and tears over a tankard of ale in the local tavern when Az comes in. Then there's Crowley's shock, his gratitude, his stumbling half-drunk tug on the priest's sleeve. There's a string connecting my hand to yours, pulling him outside where they're alone. There's the frantic conversation, the questions, the fragile and wounded relief. Let's try it, I think. He's going to lose control a bit, right? David is talking to Az, and Crowley swallows around the panic. He never thought he'd see you again, so I want him to grab you and hold you, which is what you want, right? He barely touches you, and you've just had that dream about him. So he'll hug you, and it will go on a bit, and then as you pull away... Got it, Avery says dully. I want it all on your face, okay? Everything you can't say. Right. Good to go, Anthony? Crowley nods. He hasn't touched Avery since they filmed the kiss. Not even a pat on the back on set, hand on the shoulder at dinner. He's dreamt about Avery's skin, dreamt about the warmth of him on Crowley's hands, the smell of him on Crowley's jacket sleeve. But the dreams don't count. If the dreams counted, they'd be married and honeymooning at the Amalfi Coast by now. And also Crowley would be naked and have no teeth. All right, back to ones. Take it again, same setup. The first AD calls out. Roll film. Rolling. Sounds beating. Action. 
I thought you were, I couldn't find you. The scene is a little too easy to act. Crowley can taste the fear in his molars. He already thought he'd lost Avery, still thinks it's a matter of time. The feeling floods him, crashes up against his shorelines. It's all right, I'm right here. The boy, he's safe. Are you hurt? Are you, I said, I'm, Crowley pulls him into an embrace. He holds him tight, tighter than he needs to, breathes in the scent of him. Even if I can never have you, even if this is all I get, it's enough for me. Lies, lies, it will never be enough. Avery could give Crowley the sea of himself and Crowley would still want more, would be dying of thirst with a belly full of salt water. Then they pull apart. Crowley realizes what he's doing, immediately drops his hands. And Avery looks up at him like he's something holy. Anthony, don't meet his eyes like that. It looks like it's a lead into a kiss. It's got to be a one-sided thing. Crowley's heart stops. Avery's face turns to stone. And then, bastard that he is, he raises a single eyebrow. Do cr try to contain yourself, dear. Piss off. Crowley hisses at him, and Avery's mouth twitches. Still rolling, first AD calls out. Go again, David says, from where you touch him. And oh, hell, Crowley is pulling eyes against him, letting himself imagine a world where this would be okay, where this was allowed. A world where I could reach for you whenever I wanted, the warmth of you within a distance I could close any time I liked. Not this sea width between us, the color of spring, uncrossable even by boat. They separate slowly, as is looking at him the way he did through the window of a taxi cab, and Crowley is almost dizzy with longing. Avery is an undertow he'll never get free from, will struggle against until his muscles give out and he lets himself drown. Cut. Good work, guys. Hold for stills. You want to get dinner tonight? Crowley asks. Avery's mouth twitches, the tell that means he's secretly pleased, but trying to pretend he isn't. Yes, all right. Come to mine. You haven't been. And there's a fridge full of your favorite foods going to waste, but I'll die before I tell you that. I'll cook something for you. Brought Giada to Belfast, did you? There is such a thing as the Internet Angel. You should try it sometime. Can find all loads of things on it. Some are even about food. You'd like it. If you say so. Around seven, okay? As nods. I'll see you then. After they wrap for the day, Crowley gets a lift home. He's too wound up to do anything. He's got to shower. There are tape marks on his chest from the mic, and he smells like hairspray but he can't focus enough to get up the stairs and make it happen. I have to figure out what he's making for dinner and see if he needs to nip out for ingredients and, and probably wash all the teacups he's been trailing behind himself like petals. Tidy up a bit. Just give him a minute. As held him today, looked at Crowley like he wanted him. How do you put the genie back in the bottle? How do you forget what it felt like, that razor blade of longing carving lightly over your skin, not quite enough to draw blood? Crowley can't. Fuck. 
He thought a week away would help, but it hasn't. He stands in someone else's kitchen, barely holding himself up, and dreams of heat. Avery's solid body up against his, arms around him. It makes Crowley's hands nod into fists, makes every muscle in his stomach ache. There's a knock at the door. He panics briefly before he glances at the clock. It can't be Avery. It's not even six yet. Hoping it isn't a member of the press or some crazed fan, not that he's got many of those, Crowley forces himself out of the kitchen to the front door to find a bee standing on his porch. Oh, shit. He met them in rehab. The second time through. Bees, then Beatrix, was a few years younger than Crowley, sullen and vicious, and he kind of admired that. He's always been a bit soft for folks that are crabby bastards generally. Not to him, can't stand those sorts. But the folks who are crabby right across the board, to everyone. Reminds him of a dog he had once. He still has a scar on his forearm. A couple of years later, after Crowley's third and final bloody stint at the facility, he ran into bees again. Turns out when you're an ex-meth addict with a bit of a genderqueer thing going on, not to mention an utter prick, it can be hard to find gainful employment. So bees became his new manager, Crowley's previous two having thrown their hands up in despair that he'd ever get his life back together. Bees was just as much of a disaster as him, so at least there was never any judgment, or no more than anyone else got. Bees liked to share the judgment around. They're surprisingly good at their job, not that Crowley would ever tell them as much. Everything Bees does for him is done through clenched teeth with the maximum amount of reluctance and spite, so Crowley's not sure how praise would be received. Bees would probably take it in the exact opposite way. Crowley the traitor, Bees says flatly, tromping into the house like they own it. Well, Crowley supposes they are the one footing the bill. Thought you were in London. A bit more polite than, why the hell are you here? Which is what Crowley wants to say, or more actually shriek. Do I look like I'm in London? You do not. His ears catch up with his brain. Wait, the traitor? What have I done this time? It's more like what you haven't done. And that's pick a boyfriend using some modicum of some self-preservation. Yeah, I've never been much for self-preservation. The rest of Bees' sentence makes an impact. Is this about those photos? I wasn't falling down drunk this time, and if the world can't handle seeing two grown men kiss, it wasn't like a musician, Crowley. Pay attention. Bees doesn't sit down, paces the hallway in their muddy black army boots. Crowley will have to mop up before Az comes over. A musician. Someone that would never have any desire for a bit of extra media attention, right? Someone who would never take advantage of a hookup with an aging celebrity. Oh, shit. A bit less emphasis on the aging, thanks. His heart is pounding sickly, but he's trying to keep his tone calm. He called the media, Beast snarls, both times. He has a friend. Crowley swallows the acid in his throat. He's not going to panic or collapse like a dead star. He's not works at Vice, and he just recorded a bloody single. Crowley's not going to panic. Any, any good? Bees passes their phone to Crowley. There's an image on it that must be the cover art for Matt's single. 
It's a photograph of Matt holding an acoustic guitar and looking moodily at the sea, dark hair blowing across his face. A flowery script reads, The Winsome Mariner. Ah, Crowley hands the phone back. Going to see him again? If so, we need to make a plan. I've got NDAs that he'll have to sign, something you should have taken care of from the start. Absolutely bloody not. That wasn't a question. The first bit was, am I going to... No, I'm not going to see him. I'll go back to being a proper eunuch, and you won't have to worry your head about me and all the sex I'm having. It's not the sex that worries me, Bees says sharply. As you well know, it's the rest of it. What rest of it? I... Something troubling crosses Bees' face. It's quickly smoothed away, hidden behind contempt. I'm your manager, not your therapist. I should know she sends the invoices to me. Does she? I thought it was covered by the NHS. This is why you need to be managed. Curly inhales through his nose, counts to five before exhaling. Combat breathing, they call it, used by soldiers and SWAT teams and fragile bloody actors with hearts that won't stop bleeding. All right. Well, lovely to see you, Bees. Drop by any time you want to devastate me emotionally again. Bees replies with a whole-body cringe, which feels about right given their relationship. Place okay, they say after a pause, and Crowley nods, and that's the end of that. He waits until Bees is gone to have a meltdown. Gotta keep what shreds of dignity he has left. Fuck, 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 fuck. The night before Luke left, Curly threw a beer bottle against the wall, and Luke smacked him in the face. They had both been drinking, and Luke had done a lot of shitty things before, but he'd never hit Crowley. After it happened, they both stared at each other in shock, and then Luke started laughing, almost hysterical, wheezing with it, shaking until he started crying. He was probably high as well as pissed, and Crowley was afraid to touch him. He had a swollen lip on set next day. By then, Luke was gone, had packed his bags, and gone back to his ex-wife. Curly's never talked about it, not to Pepper, not to anyone. But he remembers the force of that smack, blunt and ugly, the certainty that love would always feel like this, would only be worth anything if it hurt. Avery finds him on the front steps an hour later. Curly's been smoking mostly, as well as getting rained on. Sad old drama queen that he is, he sat down and couldn't find the energy to get back up, even when the storm started. Worst thing is, he's not all that broken up about Matt. The man's got a right to try to get ahead, and it's not like Crowley wasn't using him as well. It's just a good reminder of the kind of life he's got to live, the kind of risk he takes by getting involved with anyone, and thank Christ he didn't send the man any photos. God knows where they would have ended up. Not that Crowley would have done that. Jesus, no. His body type is best covered up. Wrap him in black leather and he looks halfway human. Strip him naked and it's all spines and ribs and right angles. No one's cup of tea. What's happened? Avery's face coming up the drive is terrified. Oh, my dear, you're soaking wet. Are you all right? Crowley isn't about to make the pair of them stand outside in the rain, so he takes his party pity party indoors. Avery's face goes through a strange transformation as Crowley fills him in on the latest drama. I am so sorry. Would you like me to... 
What do you need? Alcohol, Crowley says, shrugging off his dripping coat. Quite extraordinary amounts of alcohol. As doesn't look pleased with this answer, so Crowley keeps talking, hoping he'll get it right. You want whiskey? I've got whiskey. Also, I'm going to get bloody staggered on cheese. No better cure for heartache, eh? I could show you around. Not a bad place. You want to see the kitchen? Crowley. Look at this. The piano. Fancy tickling the ivories, Angel? Go ahead if you want. My dear. Sorry, I should have picked up a bit. Bees left things in a state. Give me a sec. I'll grab a mop and take care of... Anthony. Stop. As puts a hand on his shoulder and the contact is so shocking that Crowley actually does stop. He flinches because he wasn't expecting it, not because the touch is unwelcome, but As doesn't know that. He drops his hand immediately, and Crowley hates that lonesome patch of skin now more than ever. What do you need? I already told you I'm going to get absolutely... It's freezing in here, As interrupts him. I'll start a fire. You... It feels like Crowley has used all his words up and is scraping the bottom of the pot for anything left. Do you have a tub? Perhaps you should have a soak. As I invited you for dinner, I'll fix something, or we can order in. I'll put the kettle on as well. I, you're wet through and smell like an ashtray. Oh, I like that. In my time of need, and you come after me for my musk. Musk ox, more like. Crowley suddenly feels the cold in his bones, as if it were only being held off by adrenaline and spite. He can sense himself deflating, shoulders rolling forward, and Avery's gaze is so gentle it hurts a bit. Like love, right? The only type that's worth something. It was nothing, really. I'm not that broken up about it. I'm fine. It's fine. It's just bad manners on his part, and you don't have to give me that look. Avery's eyes have gotten wider and wider with every word that Crowley said. At the sudden silence, he blinks. Um, yes, I'm quite. You okay? Yes, perfectly. You should go upstairs. Just take a moment, and I'll take care of things down here. You don't need to fuss over me. Someone has to, as says quietly. Crowley has never been great with kindness. Old news, right? But he can't look at As right now. He needs to look at something less beautiful before his knees give out. So he does what he's told for once. He goes upstairs, draws a bath, scrubs the day off his skin, washes his hair. It's going to be even curlier now. Always dries in tighter waves than he likes. Watches the milky water ebb and flow over his stomach, his chest, the regrettable tattoos from his wasted youth. He feels better after. When he goes back downstairs, the house is warm and softly lit, and as is fussing in the kitchen over several takeaway curries. He almost drops one when Crowley comes in quietly. Oh, good Lord. Avery's eyes rake over Crowley from head to toe. He must look rather shabby with his hair down and still damp, and clothes he'd never be caught dead leaving the house in, faded jeans several sizes too large, and an old liqueur vest that's worn sheer in places, has a couple of holes in the neck. It's all right, as has seen him looking worse. 
He doesn't have to feel embarrassed. You ordered in, he says stupidly. Yes, I rather a lot, I'm afraid. I didn't know what you'd be in the mood for. Aza started rummaging through cupboards, putting out spoons and plates. You liked the lamb last time. I hope this isn't too spicy. Avery knocks a fork off the counter, almost hits his head, bending to pick it up. He's even more fluttery than normal. Crowley notices the open bottle of wine on the counter and the empty glass by Avery's right hand. Have you been down here getting trashed without me? Trashed? I have no idea what you're talking about. Here, help yourself. I don't suppose they numbered the reta? For a little while, the only sound is the scrape of forks and spoons against plates. Crowley picks at his dinner, vulture that he is. Naz pays more attention to his wine than the food. That's not like him at all. Crowley can't tell if the man's well and truly pissed or just having a bit of a mental breakdown. On behalf of Crowley's broken heart. Who knows? When their eyes meet across the table, as is always quick to look away, and Crowley wants to tear out his wet hair in frustration. They are not allowed to be back to this murderous politeness again, not when things were finally getting better. When they're finished, they fight a bit over the washing up. Crowley wins and sends Avery out to the living room with a languishing bottle of wine. He joins him not long after. As is sitting on the couch and has left a space beside him that Crowley cannot possibly take. Crowley sits on the piano bench instead, sprawling as much as he can, and it's a fucking bench, and balancing a glass of whiskey precariously beside him. What a fucking night, eh? All in all, it could have been a lot worse. If Avery hadn't been there, if he hadn't known what Crowley needed, and also what he didn't need. I am so very sorry. As his pale eyebrows pull together, and Christ, Crowley loves the movements of his face. What a thing to love. He feels soppy and stupid just thinking it. But it's true. The little chin wobble, the curl of his upper lip, the way he does this completely over-the-top, dramatic-as-fuck blink, usually when he's pissed. Shit, Curly's staring. Has gone silent and probably has a dumb little smile on his face. That's got to be some kind of red flag. It's all right. I mean, it's not all right, but I should have put it together myself, maybe. Avery's eyes are the color of a long winter. Really? Has this happened before? Uh, dating someone only to find out? We weren't dating, Crowley says quickly. Hell, it was never that. Oh. It comes out strangled and Avery clears his throat. <clears throat> Just a bit of fun. Crowley feels sick immediately after he says it, wishes he could take it back. Not that Matt wasn't fun, and not that he's ashamed of anything they did. It's just the words, the way the words come out of his mouth. He sounds careless. And Crowley is careless about his health and safety and emotional well-being and financial stability. But he's never, ever careless with hearts. Other people's, that is. He keeps throwing his own at the wall over and over wincing at the stain it leaves behind. A bit, a bit of fun, Avery repeats quietly. The tone of his voice makes Crowley want to drink a lot of whiskey quickly, but he just wets his lips with it. The sound of his throat moving is obscenely loud in the quiet. He should have put a record on. 
He should have thrown the windows open, let the rain in. Is that what you... Do you do... Curly must give him an odd look, because As takes a breath. It seems a significant sort of breath, not just the regular life-giving sort. As takes a breath like he's preparing himself to be punched in the stomach. I mean... I mean... I've never been the sort to the casual thing. What do you enjoy about it? What do I enjoy? Crowley's face is hot from the fire. Definitely from the fire. Uh, the usual stuff, you know. When As doesn't say anything, Crowley cracks a smirk that feels more like a crack, something jagged and ugly snaking across his face. What, you need me to spell it out for you? Do you want to? Avery is looking down, studying his glass in a very studious way. There is perspiration shining on his upper lip, and his chin might be trembling slightly. Curly doesn't know how he hasn't already crossed the floor, taken the man's face in his hands, held him steady, told him. Told him what? What is Avery asking? He was a good time. Nice guy, I guess, or I thought anyway. Curly takes another swig of whiskey and sinks lower on the bench. He watches the amber in his glass dance against the ice. The sex was worth the candle. What else do you want to know? What did he... Um... Avery shakes his head, tosses back the rest of his wine. He picks up the bottle from the floor by his feet, pours himself another glass. What did you like about him? I liked, I don't know, it was nice to snog someone now and then. I liked his hands. What about them? As asks too quickly. Curly's mouth is suddenly dry. He realizes that his hands have clenched into fists at his sides, hungry for something to touch. The fire snaps. The delicate moment tilts in its saucer and spills over. I'm sorry, Avery sputters. I've, I've clearly had too much to drink. What a question. I'm making you uncomfortable, and after the day you've had, I don't know what... I'm sorry. The size of them. As Crowley's career and personal history can attest, he's never been good at resisting temptation. Why would he think it'd be any different now? He had... Large hands. Strong. I like the way he... He has to stop here and swallow. As are you... Will you show me? Avery looks up then, gaze stuck on Crowley's throat. Crowley stutters at a sound that he's never made before, that he'd previously thought only whales could make. This isn't... Avery Fell can't be asking. No. No. There's no possible. God, I'm so terribly sorry. What am I even... Don't listen to me. I'm clearly... Crowley gets to his feet, and Avery stops talking. This is not a good idea. This is a terrible idea. But Crowley is on the other side of rational, and also fucked up, and also stupidly in love. In love with bad decisions, sure. The first great love of his life. But more than that, with the man sitting across from him. And he has been for three fucking years. Jesus wept three years of his life. 
Don't tell anybody. A love like this, you have to keep close to the chest. Cards face down on the table. He takes two steps across the room. Not close enough for Avery to touch, but close enough to see the rise and fall of his chest a bit clearer. The pink of his tongue as he lifts his upper lip. He was rough. This can't really be happening. This is not how it's supposed to happen. This is not how he imagined it, and he has imagined it too many times to be healthy. Most of these fantasies start off sharp and filthy and take a turn for the sickeningly soft. Crowley on his knees in front of Az, trailing his lips up the back of his calf. Crowley pressing him down into soft sheets, kissing the trail of hair below his navel. Avery carting his fingers against Crowley's scalp, telling him terrible, life-ruining things. I want you just like this. You're so good to me, my darling. I love. How? Avery's hand shaking on the stem of his wine glass. Um, exactly. Crowley is jolted from the fantasy of softness. He's not in bed. There's no sun-dappled sheets and waves crashing on the shore. He's here in a stranger's house. Like he'd take charge, do what he wanted. Crowley hesitates a moment, but his hands have been possessed, thumbing open the button of his jeans. There is something demonic going on. The zipper whines as he undoes it, too loud in the quiet. The only other sound in the room is the snap of the fire, the rain on the pavement outside, and Crowley's heart trying desperately to hammer its way out of his chest, flee before the inevitable 13-story drop to its death. Is that what you like? Az asks. Do you look for that? That sort of... Sometimes. What do you like? What would you look for? I'll do that. What else would would he? He'd touch me. Like, fuck's sake. Crowley's jeans are undone and low on his hips, and his black underwear isn't leaving much to the imagination. But there's a cliff's edge here, and Crowley has no idea if he can step over it, if he's even supposed to, when he'll just fucking fall. I don't... Please. That's what fucking does it. Avery fell, saying please, in that crumbling ruins way, each word an artifact that Crowley would catalog with his mouth. Anything, Angel, anything you like. He pushes his underwear down his hips, revealing the muscles of his stomach and a thatch of hair more copper than red. He's hard and aching, and he can't take his eyes off Avery's face. He would, like this. Crowley slides one hand down his hip bone, and when Avery gasps, he starts to stroke himself, shuddering at the first rasp of contact. Crowley feels like he's being flayed alive, stripped down to the muscles, the nerves, the bones, and the rotten, wanting core beneath it. Did you like it? When he, the specter of this other man hangs in the room with him, hangs off Avery's mouth, as if that somehow makes it okay, as if they aren't in this together, as if Avery isn't sitting and watching Crowley fuck his own fist, the look on his face of beautiful devastation. Christ, shit. Yes, I, Crowley speeds up, roughens his touch. 
Hard and fast is always easier for him, not as gutting. It's tenderness that ruins him. It's softness that makes him ache. Are you thinking about him now? That makes Crowley's hand falter just briefly. His eyes drop to Avery's mouth, the spit shine of it. He drops his gaze lower between Avery's gently spread thighs. He's hard, Crowley thinks, can see the outline of him in his trousers. It makes his mouth water, makes him want to abandon himself and crawl on hands and knees across the hard wood. No, he hisses. Then, then what? Crowley's wet in his palm, and the fire is warm at his back, and he thinks that he might die if he draws this out much longer. Avery's face in the firelight, the ragged touch of his own hand, the slick of him, the pain like a nail in his heart. You, his cock is dripping, and every twist of his palm feels like an electric shock. He's going to come, can feel it building. You, you, fuck, fuck. Avery gasps when Crowley comes, trembling wildly, hips jerking into his fist as he strokes himself through it. Oh, God, he hisses, oh, God. This is not how it's supposed to happen. There's rain, fine, and firelight, okay. But there should be soft blankets and sheepskin on the floor, and Crowley should be stripping off Avery's clothing piece by piece. Let me look at you, he'd murmur. Let me touch you. Oh, my darling. Here, Crowley would whisper, kissing his way down Avery's chest. Here, let me. You are so gorgeous. You are so lovely. Maybe their fingers would be laced, pressed up over Avery's head, Crowley's mouth on Avery's neck, Avery's legs wrapped around his waist, everything wet and slow and lined in firelight. Come for me, darling, Avery would murmur with damp lips against his neck. I want you to. I want you like this always. Crowley closes his eyes. When he regains control, he looks immediately at Avery. The man's face is red, and his mouth is open, and Crowley wants to bury himself there. The shivers of pleasure subside, leaving him with nothing but a pounding heart and a mess on his hand. Anthony. Avery is staring, and Crowley can't be stared at, not now. He isn't coordinated enough to do up his trousers, can't do anything but wipe his hand on his hip before sinking to his knees crawling across the floor until he's between Avery's legs. Avery is shaking. His thigh muscles riot as Crowley puts his hand on them, slides gently upwards. Please let me. His voice is fucking wrecked, broken. He's made entirely of shattered glass. You don't, you don't have to. God, I'll do anything, anything you like. Yes. The word sounds like it's been excised from Avery's skin, but it's a yes, and it means Crowley's hands can go to his belt, his trousers, can touch him. Oh, Avery breathes as Crowley circles his cock, gently, finding the warmth and weight of him. I, I don't, can I? Crowley's going to keep asking because, because Avery is still shaking and everything feels 
tentative. And if Crowley ruins this, he may actually stop breathing. If you, yes. And Crowley bends forward, wet-mouthed and starving, to swallow Avery down. Avery lets out a noise that sounds like a sob, tangles his fingers in Crowley's hair. And Christ, that's something Crowley didn't expect to like as much as he does. Poet, yes. Jesus Sharper. He keeps that song in his head, sucks Avery off like he's starving, because he is. He pulls back slightly, and As makes a soft, injured sound, so Crowley lowers his mouth again. He swallows and swallows around him, and when Avery makes a shallow thrust up into his mouth, Crowley moans with gratitude. Yes, yes, want me, want this. It feels like mere moments before Avery is squeezing his shoulder, thighs trembling, making tiny bitten-off cries deep in the back of his throat. I'm... You don't... I... Oh... Crowley's mouth is flooded with heat and salt. If he hadn't come already, this would do it for him, absolutely. He'd be done for. When he finally pulls off and looks up, Avery's face is wet with tears. His eyes are shining, too, and Crowley doesn't know what to say, how to take that, how to do anything but kneel at his feet. Will you... I'm sorry. Will you kiss me? Fuck, right off, Crowley does not say, though his heart almost stops with the effort of holding it back. Instead, he clambers like an animal into Avery's lap, and then they're kissing. Oh, holy fuck, oh hell, oh heaven, they're kissing. It's real this time, it's not for show, it's not practice. Crowley's mouth tastes like cum and tears, and his tongue is an ocean between Avery's lips, all seaweed and lost to ships. He could get hard again just from kissing Az like this. His hands are on Avery's throat at first. They slide up into his soft hair, duckling down in dandelion fluff and... Oh, God, the warmth of him in Crowley's arms. Their jaws rub together, a slide of stubble made sticky with tears, and Crowley sucks Avery's bottom lip into his mouth and bites gently. As gasps at that, and Crowley pulls back, presses their foreheads together. The contact between their skin is intoxicating, and he can feel Avery's clenched hands in the fabric of his shirt. Tilts his head to lick into his mouth again. I have to go. Crowley could have placed bets against himself over the first words Avery was going to say and which would hurt him the most. This was a mistake was up there, a definite contender. I have to go wasn't even on the list, but hindsight is, you know, whatever they say it is, a kick to the teeth or something. Slowly he pulls back. In inches, in increments, he lets go of Avery's hair, slides off Avery's lap. From his knees on the ground, he looks up and meets Avery's eyes. The moment is one he won't forget, probably not ever. It's tattooed on his ribcage, the shine of tears on Avery's face, the redness of his eyes, his swollen mouth. Don't. Crowley's voice is rough throat tight from being used. Don't go. I, I should. I have to. Avery's eyes are closed, and his hands are shaking too much to be useful. 
Chloe tucks him in, buttons him up. He keeps his head pressed to Avery's thigh because he can't bear to look at his face anymore. When Avery stands, it's with a slow stroke through Crowley's hair that feels almost obscene. Crowley's spine arches against his will. I... Avery's moving like he's in a trance. He almost runs into the coffee table, nearly trips over the rug. I'll... Tomorrow. Can I call you with... No, I'll walk. Walk a bit. As Sway steadies himself against the walls. Crowley forces himself to get off his knees. I don't know if you should... Please. And that's the word, right? That's the beginning and end of it. Because Crowley can't think of a thing he'd say no to if Az asked him like that. And even if he didn't ask him like that. All right. Avery struggles into his coat, winds his ridiculous scarf around his neck, transforms back into a character from a Dickens novel. Crowley's mouth still tastes like his cum, and his tears, a salt that's scalding. The rain is pounding like a wall outside, falling harder than Crowley thought rain could fall. As opens the door, steps into the downpour without a hood or an umbrella or a thought. Don't tell anybody. Keep it close to the chest. Keep your cards face down. Anthony Crowley, don't you fucking... I'm in love with you, Crowley says. Avery looks like he's just been shot in his stomach, like he's about to start bleeding out and doesn't understand why. I'm sorry, he says quietly, raindrops clinging to his blonde hair and turning it ash gray. Crowley feels like there's something stuck in his chest that he can't cough up or breathe around. There's fluid in his lungs. He's drowning. He must be. It's not your fault, Angel. He manages around the shovel in his throat. Avery makes an aborted sort of nod. It seems for a moment like he's about to say something, but he doesn't. Instead, he walks off into the rain like the worst sort of movie cliché, and Crowley watches him go, and Crowley closes the door behind him.